0: welcome to Screaming Through the Ages, a horror movie history podcast. I'm your host, Trey Whetstone, coming here from Columbus, Ohio. And on this episode, we have another one of these year in review episodes. Nathan and I have been working our way slowly through the 90s, and we're back with 1993. So I'll go ahead and welcome in my co-host for this evening, Nathan Bartlebaugh. Nathan, how you doing?
1: I'm doing great. I'm doing very well. Uh, we're, I guess I can point out we're recording on Father's Day, the end of Father's Day. And I had a, had a very nice one. My, my kids got me a shirt that says Evil Dad on it in big bloody <laughs> letters. So.
0: Yeah, I had an eventful one as well. But, it, you know, I don't think it hurts that we're a little delirious here because we do have to push through some of this stuff in 1993. <laughs> Although, what are your thoughts in general? Because I think... I didn't think much of it going in, but I think there
1: are some surprises here and there in the year. Well, it's funny because right before this, I was having a later, a late dinner with the the kids and my wife before coming down, and they were like, "Oh, what is the podcast?" they are talking about nineteen ninety three, and my wife was like, "Oh, cool. What are the top She so It's well, we did a top twenty, and she was like, "How?" <laughs> <laughs> and I think I think that's reasonable, but that's kind of where this becomes fun because as we've been mentioning on the previous two episodes on 91 and 92, and we kind of did them out of order. I remember we did 92 first and then 91. Yeah. But the fact that this is where horror and and really science fiction, a lot of the the genre stuff as in the mainstream has taken a little bit of a nosedive. And I think 93 is really that transitional period where, and it's funny because in 91 you had one of the few horror films maybe really, you know, the only true, again, people may even debate whether it was a horror film, was Silence of the Lambs winning the Oscar, right? And then in 92, even though a horror film didn't win the Oscar, like Bram Stoker's Dracula was nominated for several awards. So you you had horror movies of a certain type being nominated, and you started to see mainstream Sort of culture recognizing the horror fans at the same time that was kind of pushing horror itself as a genre sort of out of the picture. Like, the movies that are getting released into the theaters that are legit horror films are of a kind of very shaky quality. Like, I think you and I will agree that some of the movies that are released in theaters this year are movies that a single year later would be pushed to direct a video.
0: Yeah, I think there's one in particular that you probably are pretty excited that made the list, but...
1: Um. (laughs) Well, and there's definitely a movie on here, I'll I'll talk about that, where I was like, always wonder why people didn't talk more about it as a theatrical release, and I came to realize it was was only really released near me.
0: Yeah, that uh, that was a crazy story, you're going to have to tell that when we get there.
1: Yeah, so I think what's interesting about 93 is, we had seen the beginnings of the Sort of direct-to-video movement, but '93 is where really where I think the transition happens. Where if you are a horror fan, you start to see a lot of the stuff that you'd be interested in that would have been coming to the theaters in 1980s and then you know and and the drive-in just hitting direct-to-video. And meanwhile, it's kind of a ghost town in some ways, and yet there are movies that are horror adjacent or take the conventions of horror or the or the things that horror fans like and were doing them as well as you'd ever seen them done i mean there are things that are done in 1993 that are a horror fan's dream and yet i had to massage the list a little to get some of those movies in there because they aren't necessarily traditional horror films they don't quite line up in that way it's it's not unlike i think these movies fit a little bit more comfortably than say when I made the case, and I didn't put it on my list, but I made the case about how Terminator 2, it's like, what do you do with a movie like that, that sort of has some old horror pedigree, but ultimately goes in the direction of action. And you're, you're seeing that happen a lot in the mainstream in 93. There are a couple movies I want to mention up front, Trey, that I think technically were probably released here in 93, but we've already sort of talked about them. A big one, and I think I don't think this is spoiling anything, I think both of us don't have this on our list because we talked about 92. Technically, Army of Darkness was released in 1993.
0: Yeah, I noticed that in the box office when I was looking that up. Yeah,
1: and there's a couple others. I think Dead Alive, which we also talked about in 92, didn't get a release here in the States, again, through video, really, until 1993. So there's going to be some of those movies that are absent, not because we don't like them, but we've already talked about them
0: yeah and i want to go back to one of your points it's like when we included the horror adjacent stuff and don't be surprised if there's horror adjacent stuff pretty high up in at least my list yeah and we might debate that when we talk about that because i think there are some definitely some valid points but if we if you thought we were stretching with 91 um i think 93 i think what did i ex- describe it to you as nathan it was a good year for um abc family or freeforms like thirty, thirteen 13 or 31 nights of halloween it was a good yeah. year for that
1: <laughs> What's but here's the interesting thing like sometimes when we talk about horror jason it becomes a thing of like is a movie a thriller or is it a horror film i think some of the movies we're talking about fall into that category of it's hard to categorize what this movie is and yet it would almost not appeal to anyone who was not at some level a horror fan you know, it's a. There are movies on my list that you that are been tailor made to appeal to a fan of horror films without it being a horror movie exactly itself. And we, I had one or two of those in the past with the list we've done, but I've got more of them this time. And I did make one call where I felt that a certain movie ultimately belonged here because it has so much horror DNA that. If you even though it doesn't, doesn't necessarily feel like it on the outset, if you were to nix this movie, you have to nix other movies throughout history <laughs> that yeah. I think people comfortably consider horror films.
0: It's a slippery slope. And I think I've talked about yeah. that with our Giallo's horror. Well, that's a very slippery slope because some Giallo's are absolutely not horror. But then where do you draw the line? Because you can keep saying, well, are these just all thrillers or these yeah, just, yeah. I, you get into semantics, I think. And I listen I'm going to prepare you because I think, and I think you'll agree with me, 90 through 92 are very strong years. Those three years, I think they're pretty strong years yeah. for horror, creatively. And I'm looking at my list down here, and there are, I mean, we're all over the map as far as subgenres go. I don't know if there's two of the same. But there's some uh, there's some questionable movies, I think, at the bottom of my list. and But I think it's fun still to have all these different movies and talk about them. I would be prepared maybe for these lists to be pretty similar. Maybe we have, I think we probably have like at least four or five differences on our list, but yeah. And I, I guess the big question, Nathan is how many erotic thrillers you got?
1: <laughs> well, you know, in 1993, I was in the eighth grade. So I was right at the, you know, all a lot of things were happening with oh, these, so, so 20 <laughs>
0: through, numbers, 20 <laughs> through 10 are erotic thrillers. No,
1: no, but they could have <laughs> Shannon been, probably Tweed. Could have been, uh, yeah. Well, it's, it's, Shannon's movies don't quite fit here, but uh, (laughs) um,
0: I do have one. I do have one and I think you you know it. I don't think you I don't think you like the movie per se, but um,
1: interesting. I'm trying to think of what it what it would be, but I guess we will get there. But yeah, and there's a couple on that aren't on my list that are still like probably good movies that uh, there was one that I thought about putting on and I just didn't quite do it because but we'll get there because I think it may be on your list, but. That's either here or there. I think I'm ready to start. I just want to say one thing, which is like all of the 20 movies, there's definitely some schlock on here. There are mm-hmm. definitely movies on here that I would say, and this is not usually the way I try to make a list, but there are movies towards the the list that I wouldn't say are quote-unquote good. But I do recommend every one of them. Like every one of my 20 movies are movies I think the, that I enjoyed and you should see. Yeah. Whether you like them or not, it'll be something different. And I will say this, that here's how I've become to approach that question of this is this horror or is it not. Every movie here is a movie I think a horror movie fan should see and would want to see that would appeal to them as a horror fan. And so I think that's about the best you can do because sometimes people get upset. I wanted to see a horror movie and that's not what I saw. Well, fine. Some of these movies you'll be able to tell right off the bat, okay, Nathan's not recommending me a hard R slasher. But I think if you are, a, I tried to make sure everything in my list was a movie that a horror fan would be able to enjoy.
0: Yeah, I think a good way to put it is, you know, if we were putting all these lists together for the 90s, which we probably will do at the end of this. I don't think a lot of these would make a top 100 even (laughs) of the 1990s, but they're fun. Now, I, I agree with you. I think there's at least something to like in all of my movies that I picked. But yeah, your mileage will vary. So just know that going in, we're not necessarily, you know, when you get with 93, there's not a ton to choose from. And uh, we kind of did the best we could and felt out our own list. I think we probably went about it in different ways, but I I'm excited to hear what you put on it. So and one piece of housekeeping before we dive into this is we will be swapping the box office segment to the end of our list, because as Nathan um, pointed out, I think it's a good idea is usually when we go through that box office stuff, we're mentioning movies that we're going to be talking about five minutes later. So I think it's good to say our piece about our movies. And then if there's anything else that's left over in the box office, we can say that at the end.
1: Yeah. And I feel like we ended up talking about movies that sort of revealed, Oh, these are on our lists, you know? I think think it, I think it gives a little bit more mystery and we find, you were definitely movies. I definitely talked about twice simply because we did it at the box office and did it on the list. So yeah, I'm ready when you are.
0: Well, Nathan, hit us with your number 20.
1: Oh, I'll hit you with it. Um, so number 20 <laughs> is actually a sequel to a film that was, that we talked about in 1991. However, because of, I think, how strong 91 overall was a film here, it didn't, uh, I wasn't a huge, huge fan of it, and it didn't make my list. might have been in the honorable mentions. But this is Bloodstone, Subspecies 2, directed by Ted Nikolai. It's a sequel to Subspecies from 1991. It's a full moon film. It picks up exactly where the other one left off. And this is that, uh, the weird thing about this series, it's very, very uh, cloistered. You have the vampire Radu who comes back, who is such a cheat. His head has been cut off completely. And he, <laughs> he, he gets to recapitate, I guess. Yeah. The guy and, can't
0: die apparently.
1: Well, yeah. And that kind of, that happens right up front. He's still chasing Denise Duff, who is uh the, the woman who was sort of his target in the first film. And, her love interest. There was a, a story that was wrapped up and now it's no longer wrapped up. And then what's interesting is the entire arc of the sort of subspecies series that has Radu sort of chasing her and sort of becoming infatuated with her. That arc is sort of what comes, comes to life in this film. And eventually her sister goes looking for, she's experiencing elements of vampirism and she's wandering around Romania. And there's really not a lot else to this movie other than, you know, we are introduced to Radu's like kind of, gross vampire mom <laughs> down in sort of the catacombs and so you've got this story about hey how do you if you're a vampire and you're trying to get the girl and you've got the, you know and you have to take her home to mom what happens when mom's not all that appealing there's not a lot to this movie the thing i remember most about it was i was my my dad was working at a video store at the time that this movie came out and i was kind of I was still in uh, middle school, but I would sometimes like help them out. And I remember that summer that they got a like screener copy of this in like months before it had come out. So it was like, we have bloodstone subspecies too here. (laughs) Like it was a big deal to be able to see this movie early on on video with the little full moon disclaimer at the bottom of the screen. Uh, And I remember enjoying it. And when I rewatched it, I actually liked it a bit more this time, even though, again, it's really a lot of chases through catacombs. (laughs) But yes. I think Anders Hove and Denise Duff do what they can. There's other actors here. The here's the thing that like, it's Subspecies 2 has going for it is the setting. The fact that they went to Romania and actually shot it usually ends up making things look terrible because you're trying to like sub in some completely inappropriate place for you know uh Romania when it's when that's not the case. And so, or the vice versa, Romania is supposed to be who knows where. And so in this film. It works because it has that sort of old European uh, vibe to it. So I really enjoy Subspecies 2. It's not a high quality film. It's probably the strongest of the full moon movies that was released this year because we were, were, there weren't, I think there was, if there was a Puppet Master this year, it was Puppet Master 4, and the less said about that, the better. And the puppet masters were sort of on a downswing. I think we were getting Doll Man versus demonic toys. It was mostly footage from two other films, sort of mashed together. So I like this one. I don't think it's a great vampire movie. It's a fun movie. It's probably the best in this particular series of movies.
0: I'll agree with you. I think there's <laughs> there's things they improved and things they didn't improve. I think the first one had a better vibe at points, but that addition of the mother character, I think, is is pretty cool in this movie. I think that's probably one of the coolest things about this film. Uh, yeah, there's not much to say about it. It's like you said, it's very basic. But it's very straightforward. Uh, we'll see if I tire of these by the time we get to three and four, because I'm sure we'll be uh, doing that. But Hey, if I like three and four, maybe I'll watch five for over on HMP. Cause I know that one just released, but uh, I wouldn't count your chickens. Yeah. Ander, ander's hove still doing it after all these years. But, gotta eat. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, but uh anything else you want to say about uh Bloodstone subspecies too?
1: No, cuz if I say any more, there's really not much of a point in watching it. It is a very yeah. basic movie. <laughs>
0: yes, yep. All right. So, my number 20, I think there were two choices here for me and I could have went with a safer route or I could have went with something a little wild. And I went with something a little crazy here, and this is the New Zealand film Jack Be Nimble. And Jack be nimble is a weird one because you've got twin siblings, Jack and Dora, who have somewhat of like a psychic connection to each other, but they were separated. And Jack goes to this kind of backwoods family that treats him like crap. And Dora goes to this well-to-do family that wouldn't adopt both of them. And she's treated very well. And Jack kind of goes about, trying to reconnect with Dora while also building this, uh, mind control machine. I want to say, yeah, it's um, weird. It's a very weird movie. And I, I don't think it's the, um, like we said, this is definitely one of the lesser movies, but I think it's an oddity. And I think New Zealand was pumping out a lot of cool oddities throughout the time period that I didn't necessarily know about. So I think it's fun. I think you can get some, um, fun out of it. There's some cool moments for sure. But I think um, it's probably a lesser-seen film, and I think I had fun with it. So that's about all I have on Jack B. Nimble.
1: Yeah, this one didn't quite work for me. It's very odd. Like you said, it's very quirky and it's strange. And there was another film, I think it might have been Australia, not New Zealand, that came out this year, that also has that quirkiness and this weirdness. And there's something sort of charming about that. And yet I just the movies don't come together for me. I'm like, what do I do with this? Like, it's just sort of it's, you can appreciate the sort of what the heck vibe, Mm
2: -hmm. but
1: they never coalesce in anything. You're still sort of sitting there just looking like what happened? I feel like I should get a towel and wipe up now.
0: I think that's fair. I think that's fair. Yeah. Again, I don't think I'm looking on letterbox. I don't think I see anyone with it above a three stars. So kind of know what you're getting into, but, Again, it might hit for you, it might not. That's that's my problem and why it's at my number 20 and not any higher. It's like, it didn't quite come together, but there's some very interesting things on here. Yeah, and I think there's another one, Nathan, that uh, is very much more off the wall than this and you might be talking about it later, I don't know. but <laughs> it's possible, yeah, maybe. Yeah, but that's that's my number 20. So what have you got for number 19?
1: Well, I think, you know, it was bound to come up people can say what they want about it, whether we should be talking about it at all. But I, uh, so for number 19, this is a movie that I think, you know, it was bound to come up. People are going to probably question, does that really belong on this list or not? And you know, maybe you're right, but 65 million years in the making. How can I leave it off the list? You know, <laughs> I'm the biggest dinosaur fan that there is. No, and, Gen- uh, genetic tampering and dinosaurs back and, and interacting with human beings. I mean, of course, I'm talking about Carnosaur from 1993, <laughs> directed by Adam Simon. And this movie is, uh, it's directed by Adam Simon, but it's really a Roger Corman joint. I mean, Corman's the one you can, you can sense Corman behind every frame of this movie. It is a dinosaur movie that was clearly rushed into production to sort of get a leg up on Jurassic Park, which is also releasing this year, because Steven Spielberg has found a novel about dinosaurs brought back to life. And Corman goes out and finds his own novel, Carnosaur, not his own as he wrote it, but he finds a novel about uh, dinosaurs existing in modern times where they've been brought back and they run amok and attack people. Now, the difference is where Spielberg builds off of Michael Crichton's pretty interesting Jurassic Park novel I think that Corman basically throws away everything from the carnosaur book and keeps only the idea that there are hungry dinosaurs that have been brought back to live among people. Because the plot to carnosaur is absolutely 100% bonkers. And the dinosaurs are really little more than goofy little hand puppets. I mean, it looks like somebody sort of like taped teeth to their land before time pizza hut figures (laughs) and kind of went to town. Now, that's, that's really not too fair. Uh, John Carl Weakler, who did the effects for this, the, the dinosaurs, given the budget he likely had to pull this off, they don't look too bad. I think they probably should have gone with stop motion as opposed to these giant, like, life-size puppets. Yeah. But, uh, and there are a couple of neat scenes. But here's the plot. Here's the deal. So Jurassic Park, you know, the, it takes one approach in the idea of bringing human beings... Tinkering with science and tampering with the laws of nature, and bringing the species back for the purposes of you know human exploitation. This movie has a crazy scientist played by Diane Ladd, whose purpose is to bring dinosaurs back because she hates humanity and thinks dinosaurs are better. <laughs> I don't disagree with her per se, but that she thinks dinosaurs should be the ruling, uh, r- the the ruling species on Earth. That they miss their chance and so therefore she's going to give them the chance by allowing human women to be impregnated with this this virus that causes them to be impregnated with dinosaurs give birth to dinosaurs (laughs) thus killing the women and eventually the human race will be gone and nothing will be left by but dinosaurs and this is going to happen through some sort of uh infection or uh tampering with with chicken hormones and so through the chicken these people are going to get sick and then we have scenes of an entire town of women just like giving birth to dinosaur (laughs) eggs that then hatch and these dinosaurs sort of leap up and start tearing people to shreds again we're talking about puppets but there's a lot of subplots involving like Velociraptor type creatures that are running amok in Midwestern towns. You've got Diane Ladd in this facility, always bathed in these strange neon strobe lights, talking about how great and wonderful dinosaurs are. Ladd is giving it giving a really like strong performance. I have no idea why. Like she came to work and she just goes off the rails. She is so weird in this movie that when it came out in 93 i don't know why they even reviewed it on the show but siskel niebert reviewed this and gene siskel based i think on diane ladd's weird scientist alone gave this a thumbs up which seems really strange this is not a good movie but in my opinion it's a very fun movie because it's so weirdly downbeat there is an actual like apocalypse going on here and there's and there's weird scenes. There's a scene where the sheriff is just watching his whole town sort of fall apart. Women are dying. There's dinosaurs all over the place. And he has like a showdown with a raptor. It's all supposed to be poignant, like like a, like almost like a uh, you know, high noon sort of circumstance. But every, it, it just keeps getting darker at the same time. It's so incredibly goofy. In fact, the scene where someone lays down a blanket and gets ready to give birth to their very own dinosaur and is so excited <laughs> about it. You, it's what do you do with a movie like this? Well, I'll tell you what you do. You put it on this, your list. It's number nineteen.
0: <laughs> yeah, and this seems like it should be a precursor to things like Dino Park after Dark and uh what <laughs> my wet hot Allosaurus Summer or whatever.
1: Uh, rabbit ravaged by the Raptor or something. yeah, like that. yeah.
0: <laughs> but I here's the thing, and I hate to spoil it, but this did not make my list. I'm um, not surprised. It. I watched, I think, I think I watched this on YouTube. And no, the transfer was not great. Is there a good transfer? I don't know. Is there a transfer that would have made me like this movie? I don't know. But I kind of love the zany premise to this movie. Uh, it's just the execution fails at every point for me. I think it could have been great. Great in the way that you and I would think something's great we're not necessarily right in the head. Clint Howard's point. in here. I mean, Clint, I mean, Clint, listen, you can take a drink every time you hear Clint Howard, <laughs> probably this episode. And
1: <laughs> that's but, fair. You didn't like the Diane ladd character. Now I feel like I'm no, in no, no. Ebert show.
0: <laughs> no, I did. <laughs> I think I did like the Diane ladd character, but I think that's about the only thing I liked in this movie. And you can tell so much. I feel like, I feel like the opening scene is very reminiscent of what Jurassic Park was going to try to do. Later on, I'm trying to remember back Nathan because I tried to wipe this thing from my mind, but um oh, Come on. <laughs> no, yeah. I've I've watched much much worse movies, let me tell you. I do, like I said, I love the premise and the crazy plot of this movie. I just couldn't connect with it <laughs> really at the end of the day. I'm not going to sit here and bash it.
1: Yeah, these are not high quality dinosaurs, but this movie is so crazy. And and there are actors. The, the acting is not, for the most part, I don't think is awful here. Raphael Rafael Sabarge was the lead in the film. He's fine. Uh, you've seen him in, in uh, other places elsewhere. Everyone's okay, but it is that Corman movie where there's just like the move. The some of the shots aren't lit the way they should be lit. The dinosaurs are not impressive. There is a battle between a T Rex and a like a basically like a bulldozer (laughs) that's uh that's reminiscent of that 1960s movie dinosaurs and i'm not sure the special effects look any better in this film and this movie's ending is entirely too downbeat for how for what this movie is like for the kind of goofy dinosaurs uh, run amok and 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 take over the world plot but you are right like where we wanted to see jurassic park go when the dinosaurs are now running rampant through modern society we didn't get that there we get it in spades here but you're like wow that's not uh, it's underwhelming uh, a little bit i think
0: that's i think that's a big problem are the dinosaurs themselves because honestly i'm thinking back now and i'm thinking I was a little too hard on the boneyard from our 91 <laughs> episode because they at least had some pretty cool creature designs at point. So I, I don't know, Nathan, I know you love this movie. I don't want to crap. it. I, I don't, I just, let's, it just let's, let's back up. Me. I
1: do. I don't love this movie, but <laughs> I think it's a fun B movie. It's hard not to sort of appreciate it for it's in my opinion, because I'm a dinosaur fan and we don't get many dinosaur movies and we never had a dinosaur movie like this one, like ever. And a so,
0: dinosaur movie that Nathan misses.
1: No, no, it's true. I mean, I've watched a lot of them and a lot of them are awful. And I'm not saying this one's great, but it is fun schlock, in my opinion. It's uh, probably one of the better Corman produced movies from this era, from this 90s era. And there are a couple of sequels to this that aren't terrible. They're much more traditional in terms of like the plot. They don't involve women giving birth to dinosaurs.
0: See, I think if you lose that plot, you lose any magic
1: that this movie has. I, I, I think that plot's pretty cool, honestly. As it is ridiculous, and you need. I think you would want to see this movie if you haven't. For Diane Ladd as a crazy scientist whose goal is to wipe away humans and replace them with dinosaurs.
0: Yeah, and I love that. That's it's great motivation. I mean, I welcome our dino overlords. <laughs> But yeah, no, Diane Ladd is absolutely the reason I think to see this movie and her uh, <laughs> a little bit offbeat performance here.
1: Just a little bit.
0: <laughs> yeah, just a tiny bit. All right, anything else on Carnosaurus? No, I've said too Carnosaur, much. Carnosaur, Carnosaur. Sorry. That's okay.
1: That's the Italian version. Carnosaurus.
0: <laughs> Carnosaurus 2. I mean, it's probably Jurassic Park 2 overseas in Italy. Right. They just Um,
1: released it as Jurassic Park. (laughs) Like,
0: um, okay. So my number 19 is one that I think had some good pieces there, but didn't pull it off. Kind of like Jack B nimble. And that is, um, the good son. And this is, I can't remember if you told me this or not, Nathan, but this does definitely feel like the sequel to home alone. When Kevin McAllister has realized his full psychopathic tendencies and um, is now, you know, a little older and he's going to live out those the sadistic fantasies of himself. It does star um Macaulay Culkin here and also Elijah Wood and uh, David Morse. There's a which I guess Morse isn't in it too much, but there's a pretty decent cast, I feel like. And essentially, you know, Elijah Wood's character, his mother passed away and all this, and I don't want to get too much or bogged down the plot, but he comes to live with Macaulay Culkin's family, who, you know, his aunt, uncle, cousins. And uh, Macaulay Culkin's a little off in this movie. Some might call him evil, I would say. But I think it's uh, fun to a point, but at some point you just get so frustrated about this kid and no one believes what's going on and he just gets away with so much that by the time you get to the end, it's kind of almost... <laughs> triumphant what happens but yeah i don't have too much to say on the good son it's very basic evil kid type movie but hey i i enjoyed it enough for what it was
1: wow and so like so far my list is a lot schlockier than yours (laughs) and i don't just wait i don't know i can complain about maybe like the good son after i just talked about a movie where human women are dying giving birth to dinosaurs inexplicably (laughs) but i think this i remember when this film came out and it came out in like the fall of 1993 and i remember that like just what you said and i think i probably did mention that that like the appeal at the time was this is like homo like i always thought home alone had a sinister sort of unsavory quality to how much he enjoys beating those guys up and it is like yeah did he not learn in that moment in almost a Becky sort of way, right? The day this is, I kind of like being able to hurt people. And Good Son was marketed off of that. But I don't think that it earns that, like, it doesn't, Earn that sort of pedigree of, oh, this is if Home Alone were real. Or this would be if Kevin McCallister went really dark. Like, he is dark. And this is this has dark elements. But the movie is set up almost like a weird sort of fairy tale, you know, because of the Elijah Wood character who comes into this family and he's had all this tragedy that's happened to him and he's got this evil, you know, counterpart that no matter what he does, no one listens to him. And this, this kid is... You know, he's not in the old fairy tales. It's the evil step parent, and here the step parent or the or the people who bring him in, the mother is the one who's sort of, uh, you know, at the mercy. All they ever, everyone's at the mercy of this kid, and mm-hmm. so it has a feeling that like even it's almost. There are times when it just doesn't fully exploit the horror that is supposed to be at the center of it. It it feels almost like it almost has a V.C. Andrews feel or something, like a flowers in the attic. I don't know if that makes sense. Like, there's a sort of, like, neo-Gothic vibe to it, and yet I don't think it exploits that a lot. And then, so he he's a horrible kid, and he is murderous, but, like... Yeah. At the end of the day, I'm just not that threatened by him. And there's that bit where, although he, his thing, he has Mr. Highway where he takes this like, oh, yeah, that's dumps it into the road to watch all the cars like just wreck is insane.
0: (laughs) Well, that's probably the most we get of him because we get allusions to things he might have done, things that he might do. But I think you're right is on screen. We don't see a truly sadistic kid out there all the time. I mean, he's definitely out there doing stuff. He's definitely out to make them think Elijah woods character is crazy
1: and unhinged and not right. And all that. But without that, in a lot of ways for me, it just wasn't that interesting of a movie. He's no Mikey. Let me put it that way.
0: Well, no, I, I agree with you there actually. Um, as weird as that is to say, (laughs) But yeah, I'm way more threatened by Mikey than I was by (laughs) Macaulay Culkin in this movie. But yeah, that was my number 19.
1: Nathan, I think it's safe to say it will not be on your list. It's not. So let me share (laughs) with you something far more sophisticated. Yeah, number 18. At Number 18, I have Man's Best Friend. (laughs) Which is directed by John Lafayette and is, I mean, I don't want to get, you know, I'm, I'm not going to get into one of these things of, uh, you know, is this a horror movie or not? Because we're talking about Terminator a slasher or not. Is man's best friend a killer animal movie or not? Uh, now, this is a misleading cover. This one has Lance Henriksen on the front of it with a gun with a laser sight. And in the background, there is a dog. And half of its face is literally robotic like the Terminator, <laughs> which I think is very misleading. The taglines: companion, protector, killer. And the... Uh, The idea here is that you have another kind of crazy scientist. I mean, he's not as wackadoo as uh, Diane Ladd, but he's probably they probably work in the same building. And Lance Henriksen has created this military. I mean, I think that's what is intended is this sort of like military weapon, but it's a dog that's been genetically. And this is the part that I, you know, given the posters and everything, it's not a robot dog. No, but it's rather a dog that has been sort of synthesized from all these different pieces and is a sort of a genetic hybrid. But the concept of what a hybrid is in, the, in this 1993 movie is that if I if I somehow breed jaguar genes into this dog, it will be literally be able to sprout jaguar like claws and climb a tree. And if I breed it with like chameleon DNA, it can cloak itself like the predator. Which is a lot of very weird, bizarre sort of like traits to give this dog, who otherwise is like a friendly, lovable, can be a friendly, lovable dog, and until he's triggered and his programming, as it were, sort of kicks in, and he and he escapes the facility where Lance Henriksen, who's the crazy doctor, has him, and he goes to live with and ends up in the life of Ali Sheedy, and he kind of becomes her protector, and he's her pet, and they bond. And you know, I'm like, didn't it's like short circuit, really? <laughs> Except this time, Ali Sheedy has a giant dog that can cloak itself, and it's like Cujo if he also had all the traits of the Predator and the Terminator combined. The movie is ridiculous. I mean, it is a very, very silly movie. I it's a it's a relatively well made movie, though I think it's, it's to some degree, and. It never takes itself, in my opinion, too seriously, and there is an element to have this be sort of like the girl and her dog movie, and there's sympathy for the dog. And Lance Henriksen was really like tearing up the scenery in these like mm-hmm. '90s films. He's in another movie that, to me, I couldn't quite bump it into into horror, but Hard Target with uh, Jean Claude Van Damme, he's a villain in that movie, and he's probably even more menacing there than he is here. But, uh, and I think Ali Sheedy is fine. But the movie is fun. I thought it was a kind of fun, goofy throwback. And what shouldn't work, and it probably really kind of doesn't work, is the dog's weirdly superpower abilities. But it makes the movie yeah. more fun because, again, we're talking about actual like CGI where it can cloak itself and look like the plants <laughs> and the shrubbery uh, or the scene where it climbs up and you just see it's opening its mouth. And it looks for all the world like the, the same year the Sandlot came out. In that scene with that giant like mechanical uh-huh. dog had the kids imagine it so big. Well, this is the the the, the, the hind cores of the cat are disappearing <laughs> into the big mechanical jaws <laughs> of this thing uh it's it is a very goofy movie i don't know how much i can defend but i think as a piece of schlock it's kind of this weirdo take on frankenstein it's a, it's amazing that it sort of exists here's a movie where they say you know it would be great if we took a frankenstein story and they inserted the cujo element where cujo is not just a rabbit dog but he's actually like a a bred sort of like military weapon none of it makes much sense makes a little more sense than you know uh having women give birth to dinosaurs but I
0: like it. You know, I've got to take a little umbrage of what you said there. There's nothing more serious and sophisticated than that poodle scene um, <laughs> oh, in this gosh, movie. I didn't want to get into that. <laughs> the tone of that is so weird. But no, I um, I think this is the most fun movie you've talked about so far. Either one of us has talked about so far. <laughs> I don't. I wouldn't say my first two picks are very fun. Probably hear more about man's best friend later. I think this is a very fun movie. Oh, he pees
1: acid. I forgot that.
0: (laughs) Yes. It's just, yeah, you can't take this movie seriously at all. But, you know, I've gained between this and a little movie from this year called The Artifice Girl uh, in two very different ways. I've gained some respect for Lance Henriksen because I think he uh, when he's on, he's
1: on, man. And when you say this year, you mean from 2023. I haven't seen that film yet. Yeah, that's a great. I didn't know Lance was in it.
0: I'm hyping that up. I talked about it on a recent episode, but that's my, I think my favorite non-horror movie of this year so far.
1: Man, is Mr. Phantom Galaxy. I'm going to have to go watch that movie now. Yeah, so. and most
0: of it's just dialogue. That's the thing. It's is awesome. like, I, I love it, but it's mainly just dialogue driven and talking yeah, this about this one's not. No, this <laughs> is much more fun than that one.
1: But <laughs> it's yeah. probably it's a lot to, bummer, too.
0: I was so glad you, I didn't know what to expect coming into this because, you know, you go, on Letterboxd, anytime you see something under a three average rating and you see it's on Tubi, I think it was on Tubi at the time. I don't think it is now, but I, maybe it wasn't. But you kind of go in. I That means factors about to drop
1: a 4K of it, probably. Yeah.
0: <laughs> but I uh, yeah, I, I really enjoyed this one. It was one of the bigger or better surprises of this year, I think.
1: And it did get a theatrical release. I distinctly remember it did the get theaters, a theatrical
0: yeah. release. And we will probably yes, we will talk about that later. Uh, anything else on man's best friend for now?
1: No, except that if you're some, if you're a a movie fan in general, and you remember the movie Friday with Ice Cube and Chris Tucker, <laughs> yeah. uh, Ice Cube's dad's played by John Witherspoon, who who's since passed. But in that film, you know, he's the mailman. At some point, he's been attacked by a dog, and he's sitting there like. I think he's got an ice pack on his butt and he's laying on the bed and he's yeah, watching yep. a, a movie and he's watching a movie where a dog is chasing and it's new line. So they're, they're recycling one of their own movies and he's yep. watching man's best friend on the television. That's
0: awesome. That goes up there with the, uh, you point that out twice now because we had the uh, silent night, deadly night stuff as well. Oh
1: yeah, that's right. Where they just with the TV up within a TV. Movie. Yeah. <laughs> Clint Howard sitting on a bed while people are literally making love in it watching another one of the movies <laughs> on the TV. Well, wow.
0: Classic uh, again, Clint Howard. Clint Howard, there he is again. You're going to be drunk by the end of this episode if you take you a You know, shot I remember.
1: didn't even check to see, and I can't remember if Clint Howard was in this film or not. <laughs> but William Sanderson was, so.
0: Okay, so my number 18, I won't talk about too much, but it is, uh, we've already talked about it. It is Bloodstone, Subspecies 2, you know, Radu's Revenge here. I think it was, it at least lives up to the same quality as the first one. <laughs> And again, I think the element of the mother character is pretty cool. So uh, other than that, very standard movie. And we've talked a, a decent amount about that one. So I will uh, move back over to your number 17, Nathan.
1: OK, so we've talked about, well, you know, I started to get into movies. The, these three or four here uh, or four or five actually are movies that, I, again, I just kind of think they're fun. And they had particularly in the summer of uh, 1993 or you know probably it would have been the summer of 94 where i was probably catching up with a lot of them on like vhs it's just the fun you wanted a movie that was going to be kind of fun and silly and this was a movie that actually didn't come to theaters but went directly to cable first so i think i saw it on cable and not on uh vhs because it kind of bypassed the theaters and that is body bags uh an anthology series that is you know and this movie is probably better than some of the other films that that i have higher than it is but uh i'll I'll explain in a moment so body bags is a anthology and at the time that it came out we weren't having a ton of those anthologies right like tales from the crypt was still on television and that was probably probably scratching the itch that most people had for sort of anthology yeah we had tales from the dark
0: side movie in 1990 i believe but that was a few years earlier and i think
1: the next one you end up getting is a little bit later you get you know like tales from the hood or something in a year yeah well we did get another one this year right we do get another one no no i think one that's not not as well seen. yeah so there's a couple of them here and there may even be one in 94 but they aren't they aren't and there were a few others but ones that probably won't come anywhere near this list like future shock which which is not terrific but body bags it does stand out because it has it's it's got a uh, a pedigree that's that's pretty good for one thing john carpenter is actually uh in addition to working on the film he's actually in the film as sort of the uh the narrator almost like the crypt keeper sort of character who introduces each segment he's that horror host character his scenes actually i'll be honest uh inside the fact that john carpenter sort of already looks like a corpse without a lot of additional makeup and stuff he uh his scenes really i don't know they don't work that well for me i think his like the kind of crypt keeper humor they're going for is kind of uh i don't know it it just doesn't really work it feels a little clunky the stories there are three of them and they sort of uh They're they're varying levels of effective, I think, and I don't want to go into too much detail, but you've got uh, a woman who, kind of a very basic story of a woman being stalked by a serial killer across the space of one night while she's out and about, and then there's a a segment featuring Stacey Keach about a man who is balding and wants just, you know, he longs to have a beautiful head of hair and he's willing to do whatever it might take to do that and he ends up hooking up with this this facility or this uh, treatment program that's going to allow him to have wonderful you know beautiful locks of hair of course like with everything there's a price and then there's a uh a sequence a really crazy sort of sequence with Mark Hamill involving a looking directly through the eyes of a killer but it has a reminiscent of i'm trying to think of how to say this without completely spoiling the story reminiscent of a movie we talked about in 91 called body parts where uh you where the the body pieces of a previous killer turned out to be very problematic i think the movie's fun i think it's fun throughout i think that each segment has benefits to it toby hooper also provides one of the segments but for me, it's the middle segment, the one with Keech, that kind of uh, is very weird, very kind of droll and and equal parts lighthearted and gruesome and has a few like sci-fi elements to it. I think that's the one that probably feels the most like the sort of Tales from the Crypt, Tales from the Dark Side vibe they seem to be going for with the movies. The other two segments, the Mark Hamill one's very weird and kind of off the wall, but ultimately I don't know how how effective it is and the first one feels very very basic but i think the overall experience of watching body bags is a fun one and i like anthology horror and i like the sort of energy that goes into delivering this i think that it's lower on this list because while each segment is fine by itself they don't really coalesce they haven't been the whole movie has been organized in a way that really makes each story pop out the way that say 1982's creep show did, or even a movie that might not be quite as good as that. You know, a movie like Nightmares from 1983. Like these three stories don't mesh together in a way that really makes us a satisfying whole, in my opinion. But I like each piece of it enough that, you know, I'm recommending it and I think it's uh it's a it's it's pretty fun.
0: Yeah, and this one was just on the outside of my list. I did bump it for Jack Be Nimble just because like I think I said, that was more like weird and kind of off the wall. And I wanted to yeah. get that one mentioned. But I think Body Bags is a very standard anthology. I do like the Stacey Keach. I mean, I like pretty much anything with Stacey Keach in it, but I do like that segment. I think it's a very solid movie. And I think it's on probably the level of quality as the or higher than the uh, three films I've talked about so far. But yeah, that one just missed the list for me. I thought it was a lot of fun, but. Uh, not really quite distinguishable from the bottom part of my list.
1: Yeah, but you know, with you got Hooper and Carpenter working on it, and it is it's worth seeing.
0: All right, so is that all you had to say on body bags, Nathan?
1: Yeah, yeah, I think it's what again. It's a it's a movie. If you're a horror fan, and you haven't seen it, you'll want to see it, and it's uh it's decent.
0: Yeah, I think this would probably if we're talking about this list, I feel like if there's any feedback, I feel like the way people talk about this movie, this is probably one that people are going to say we underrated. Yeah, you're probably because I do hear people talking about it, how they do enjoy it. But okay, for my number 17, I've got a movie that people probably won't think is very good. It's very much a thriller, but it's directed by Tom Holland, who brought us Fright Night and um, Child's Play. And that is The Temp. (laughs) So this is the other Timothy Hutton movie from 1993. Yes. And uh, we also have uh, Lara Flynn Boyle here from, of course, we had to get our Twin Peaks uh, reference in. But yeah, we've got um, St- Stephen Weber here as well. And this is an uh, an interesting movie. Basically, we have Timothy Hutton who, now if I'm remembering right, he's portrayed as not a very good uh, father in this, right?
1: Yeah, he's kind of a heel. I mean, he's he's your typical 1990s dad who's just a jackass.
0: Yeah. Uh, But essentially, he works at this food company, and these mysterious things start happening after his temp... I don't know if she's a secretary or not, but... Anyway, some mysterious things start happening, and there starts this, like, corporate rivalry, and he's really wondering what's going on. he's kind of losing it, honestly. But again, I don't think you're going to find anything very distinguishable about this movie. I just love this type of thriller where it's kind of going back and forth. You don't really know what's going on. I would say this is definitely less of a violent thriller. Would that be fair to say, Nathan?
1: Yeah. Yeah. It's not, it's not even it's in that vein of like the fatal attraction sort of movie, but it's, it's pretty, uh, pretty wild, Yeah. Yeah.
0: Yeah. But, um, I enjoyed it for what it was again. I, I don't have a lot to say on these first few movies, but I just thought this was, see, this is what would make a 93 list that wouldn't make a 92 or a 91 list for me, but I'm a sucker for thrillers of this type. I liked Timothy Hutton in this. I like the cast in this, but yeah, that is my number 17. I know you're not maybe a huge fan of this one, Nathan, and I don't think looking at letterboxd, a lot of people are, but I thought it was interesting enough, and it, yeah.
1: Uh, although I think I thought I recommended this one to you, or at least mentioned, hey, make sure you. see, You this. definitely yeah.
0: did recommend um, this to me, and but I you do... also recommended like twenty other movies to me <laughs> that I hadn't seen. You were very versed on these early '90s movies.
1: But, but that, that's to say that, like, yeah, I actually I think this movie's fine, and I like Tom Holland, and I that was, but I was probably because of my love for Fright Night and and for Child's Play, like I was yeah, probably it's hoping. Not that. It's not, and it isn't really that much of a horror film. And it it could be, it it starts out very promising. And I think the problem is when you get these twisty, turny, is this what's happening? Is this not what is is happening? You know, uh, when you can't quite trust or the main character can't trust anyone and is uncertain if they can even trust their own like mine. This movie sort of ends up with characters that I feel like They could have figured out what was going on if if like two or more people just started talking to each other. And, you know, that sort of idiot plot idea where, hey, if any of the characters just sat in a room and said, wait a minute, what do you think about this? Or did you notice that so-and-so was acting like this? Like, feels like 90% of this plot of this film could have been avoided at any point had someone just done that. Yeah, I can't argue with you there. Uh, but the acting <laughs> is fun and the movie has a kind of playful nature to it. It's not bad and it is like I can see someone this is sort of like almost like a, a lifetime movie on steroids.
0: Yeah. Like it's yeah. got
1: that, you know, it fits into that a few years later we have been getting movies like Fear and and I oh, actually was was the crush from this year. It was. Yeah, yes. so this movie probably fits into that sort of that that element of it toes the line yeah. of being an erotic thriller or not. It's but. it's a little smarter than that movie, in my opinion. But I uh, I do like it. I think it's a fun movie. But it's not it's not necessarily a very good movie.
0: <laughs> <laughs> no, but you do have you know a, a battle in the cookie industry, and how often do we get to see that at play out? That is film? very true. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, that's enough about that one. Let's move on to your number sixteen, Nathan.
1: Oh, this is where it gets classy. Don't you worry about that. Uh, so yeah, so we've we've talked about the cookie industry. We've talked about you know genetic uh, monsters. And so, how about a we go back to the good old fashioned nineteen seventy style eco thriller uh, where the mutant creatures are created because of of essentially bad management at the marijuana plant factory. <laughs> And this is the this is Ticks from 1993, and it is just of course it's 93. That's what we're talking about here. But the reason I sort of mention that is I think this movie was made maybe just a tad earlier than 93, and then it probably sat around for a little bit. And I think that I'm not entirely certain if it was released in 1993 because I think most people consider this to be a film. That was released directly to video, and it was released directly to video as the movie ticks, probably in the summer of 1994. And uh, it's directed by Tony Randall. We've talked about Tony Randall a lot on on these episodes uh, because Tony was, Randall was the man. Yeah, he's a direct. He's director of a <laughs> lot of movies. He's director of Hellraiser. Uh, Hellbound, yeah, Hellraiser two, Hellbound. He's also the enjoy. director of of the movie that you're a big fan of, Amityville. Oh, never, never heard of it. Never heard of it. It's about time. <laughs> right? Hey, and I like that movie too, and I think I like it more now after you know after you sent me a copy of it. <laughs> because you had two of them hey, yeah well I've, that's
0: that's vinegar syndrome right, for not every one for three months i but.
1: think recently on some episode of something i said that it's probably the best of the amityville movies and i stand by that it's that's probably true but here you've, he's got a movie that is just sort of very very basic but i personally think it's it's very fun and it's one of those movies almost set up just like a movie like prophecy or a movie like like uh, Piranha, where there are bad things going on with the you know environment because the, of again sort of conglomerations decide. Usually in this movie, it's a big business that's polluting the it's polluting the water or it's putting vats of something in a cave where they shouldn't be putting it. And here, it's just really there are these marijuana growers that have let their their operation get out of hand, and as a result, we're getting giant mutant ticks. And these mutant ticks are just running rampant throughout this forest, and it's a forest where you have a group of, uh, you've got two people who are bringing a, a couple, uh, there's a man and his girlfriend and their daughter, and they are, and his daughter, rather, and they go out into the woods with these kids that uh, it's it's almost like, I'm trying to think of how to, to describe it, but they're taking sort of under, disadvantaged or troubled teens out into the woods and the idea is we're going to sort of uh, go into nature and uh, get you back on track and there's going to be this positivity to it and the group of teens that show up they all it's very bizarre for the to begin with that they all meet in like an abandoned business park somewhere like under a bridge. Oh yeah I was not sure about this movie at that first scene. Well it's bizarre because the parents are supposed to be dropping their kids off and Seth Green is the star of the film I guess if there is a star he's the pro that the ticks are really the star or maybe it's Clint Howard you could describe you could decide because yes Clint Clint Howard and his dad Rance Howard are both in this film there is not surprisingly uh, because he was probably out filming Apollo 13 at this point there is no Ron Howard in this movie Movie, no, but you've got Seth Green. He's dropped off at this place, and his big thing seems to be he has a crippling anxiety over being left alone in the woods. So, in order to cure his crippling anxiety, (laughs) his dad pulls up and leaves him out in the middle of this (laughs) urban business park and drives off (laughs) and says, "Here, you go with these people." So he's just hanging there, and then he meets uh, Alfonso Rivera, who's mostly known as playing Carlton. On the Fresh Prince of Bel Air, and he's playing this kind of like tough, want to be tough sort of—I guess for lack of a better term—the movie is trying to portray him as almost like a gangbanger. Yeah. But it's his performance is all the world like an episode of Fresh Prince where Carlton decides to pretend to be tough. Oh, it's bad. <laughs> it's it is that level where it almost should be like this is the you know you're laughing at how how. Campy he is at his at his attempts to be tough and street and stuff like that. And his interactions with Seth Green. I'm like, this movie is ridiculous. Uh Rosalind Allen is in the movie. Amy Dolans is in the movie. She shows up with her boyfriend who they roll up and they are stereotypes to the, you know, everybody mm-hmm. in this opening scene. It's like you said, Trey, you're like, how I'm not much further I'm gonna get. And I probably didn't, yeah, that probably didn't bother me as much in like 1993 when I saw the film. But here it's like what are we now it sticks it sticks out really badly and then you've got the hillbillies at the moonshine <laughs> factory and there's this third guy uh i think it's barry lynch's character who sort of he, he, he has everyone call him sir and yes. he's always running a comb through his hair and he's just an evil british villain but why he's an evil british villain in the middle of the woods out out here and he's overseeing this dinky like pot growing operation i don't understand it like you,
0: you know what it re- reminds me of now that you're talking about it is uh call me daddy everyone does
1: yeah you're right from uh from uh, what was that movie unwelcome oh, welcome. yeah <laughs> but it doesn't even have that level of sophistication so, no
2: <laughs>
1: the pot growers and the kids in the the, the kids on the cabin they do end up having a conflict And at the same time that that's happening, the ticks are kind of growing in these big kind of really gross undulating like pods that are hanging off of the trees and just really disgusting and gloopy. And then the, as the ticks start to hatch, they start running amok and attacking people. And it's basically what you would expect from that sort of like giant bug movie. The ticks keep getting bigger and bigger. And I kind of even like the special effects that are halfway between stop motion and, and just bad CGI and also just <laughs> hand puppets. But there's such yeah. a variety of that. And, and Brian Usna works on the special effects here. The gloopiness, and I saw this in a Vinegar Syndrome 4K copy recently. The gloopiness is, is helped a lot by that 4K. And the special effects are actually... Actually, pretty fun. They're maybe the most fun thing about the movie. But once the movie sort of gets rolling, the other fun thing are these weird off the wall performances by the bad guys, including Clint Howard, who's more of a hapless guy than really like uh, yeah. that much of a bad guy. Because mostly bad things just happen to him. And the poster art for this uh, on the Vinegar Syndrome has that scene where he's uh he pops up and his face is just pulsing with ticks under the surface, and he's screaming, "I'm infested." which leads me to the point here that when i first uh came to know of this movie it was being advertised on local television i didn't think it was local at the time i assumed it was going to be released world you know nationwide as infested and i remember the like i remember at the time like i used to cut and collect a little like uh poster art that would be in the newspaper you know you would turn to the ads and they'd have all the pictures of the movies coming out and i used to collect them and kind of keep them in a binder and i had the poster for this movie where it was called infested not ticks infested and i waited for this movie to come out on vhs and it never did and then one day i rented the movie ticks and realized that some of the images i was seeing in this film were the same things that were in the trailer and it was the same movie but infested it turns out was only released in baltimore (laughs) maryland back in 1993 and not in 94 so as far as i can ascertain the only place it was ever released was directly near me and that's why i thought i had always thought it had been a theatrical film because it played for a handful of weeks around around here I like the movie. I think it's a very fun movie. It is a problem out the wazoo. Uh, It doesn't make a whole lot of sense as the movie continues. And some of the ticks get bigger and have random abilities that don't always make sense. Rivera's performance in the movie is really goofy. (laughs) Most of the performances in the movie are a little bit goofy, but there's a, I have a certain affection for the kind of movie that this was trying to be. And I think it hits that Mark pretty well. Like, it's ticks are, gre- are, are gross and creepy and even kind of scary at certain points. The schlock nature of the movie is enjoyable. They have a few funny comedic moments, and it doesn't take itself too seriously. And Tony Randall, I will say this, he can take a movie where he has very little money, and he can make it kind of conceptually interesting. He did that with Amityville 92. He did that with Hellraiser 2, and he's done that with ticks. And uh, I, for what it is, it's a lot better than it should be. <laughs>
0: Yeah, and I want to go over a few things. I couldn't believe that story when you told me that about it only <laughs> in Baltimore.
1: I didn't realize that until we were researching for the show, and I couldn't find – I was looking for any information I could find about Infested and about it being released in the theaters. And it – like when you go to IMDb, it shows Baltimore as the, that, main, the place crazy. it was released.
0: <laughs> yeah. Um, and I i got to say, this is such a fun movie. I didn't know what I was going to think of going into it. But I do like the, you know, the offbeat and goofiness of it. And I even like I think it's kind of I think you're right. And it fits that time period. And you've got kind of the the cuteness of, you know, Seth Green and Virginia Keene's character here as they go through the movie of um kind of a budding romance there and i like the the way they play everything off i really like you didn't mention it that uh scene at the vet's office i I was about to
1: say that's one of the most fun where they've got the they take the dog the i think the tick off of the dog and it just starts going crazy like that's a really fun (laughs) scene yeah
0: yeah this movie is just a lot of fun now the the stuff with clinton howard is pretty gross but I think it's supposed to be. And yeah, this is just, I was really surprised. It's a bad movie, but it's a fun, bad movie. It's really fun. And I think that's what we saw in our 91 episode. A lot is there's a lot of bad movies, but I think this is fun in that way that when I went back and first was starting watching stuff from 1992, it just gave me a nostalgic vibe, even though I was very young at this time period. But I think I do have a nostalgic Like, something in me for movies of this time i think they have a certain feel i think a lot of them have like you know they're not taking themselves too seriously and when they are taking themselves too seriously they're at least you know they do have a lot of fun in them and i don't know if any of that makes any sense but i think ticks fits that mold for me
1: and let me point out that the thing that gets ticks all freaked out and and causes them to kind of like you know particularly towards the end mutate is it one of the characters who's now wounded thinks that he'll be okay if he just eats a bunch of steroids? <laughs> yeah,
0: yeah, that's <laughs> that's ticks, guys. That's ticks. Everyone,
1: <laughs> go see but, it.
0: No, I was really glad you uh, you introduced this one to me. Like I said, you probably introduced me to a lot of the movies on the lower half of my list. At least I but... can't
1: tell if that's like. Thanks or an accusation. No no no. Yeah, is that an <laughs> indictment? Um, <Yeah. laughs>
0: no, I think most of the crap that I watched wasn't of my own doing. <laughs> I don't know. I'm looking at it now. I don't know what we'll to talk about that. But yeah. So anything else to say on ticks before we move on?
1: No, I again uh it is what it is.
0: <laughs> yeah. So my number sixteen is probably one of the more well made movies that we've talked about so far. And that is Fire in the Sky, and I think a lot of people would have a problem calling this a horror movie. But again, we are stretching the uh, the boundaries here, and I don't think this will be even the furthest stretch. But the reason I included it on my horror list, and if you're not aware, this is a movie about they're loggers, right, Nathan? They're yep. doing like mm-hmm. lumberjack guy stuff. Yep. Yeah, I thought so. And they're they're going up here, and one of their own basically from their perspective gets abducted by aliens or something happens with aliens. And there is a scene near the end of this movie that is harrowing and is some of the best body horror. And it seems like something out of, I don't even know how to describe this and I don't want to, because I want it to be a surprise if you haven't seen this movie. Yeah. That ending scene is very gnarly. I think the problem with Fire in the Sky and why it doesn't get higher is it gets a little plodding sometimes, especially at the beginning, and it kind of moves along. It's kind of the same thing. And I think it gets interesting when a certain character comes back into the picture. And then I really clicked and connected with the movie from that point on. I just think in the early to middle part of this movie, there's a lot of um, a lot of time that's not really spent well. But honestly, if you just need, if you are a horror fan, you need to stick in with this movie until the end for that ending piece because I think it's well worth it. I don't know what your thoughts on Fire in the Sky are, Nathan. I know you're much more. Well, I know I like sci fi a lot, but you are definitely a huge into sci fi.
1: Yeah. And this actually is a lot higher on my list than yours. And I will talk about it a little bit later in more detail. What I will say is I. I consider it a horror film because, to me, at the time that I saw it, it kind of was horrifying. I don't know if you mentioned, but this is, again, you take these statements with a grain of salt, but based on a true story. And it—and that Travis Walton's story and what happened, including the perspective of his friends who were the kind of with him and then he's gone and then they're sort of blamed for his disappearance, at least initially there that all of that has basis in 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 reality and in, in, in truth and, and even the things you see later in the film are supposed to be based off of what travis walton believes happened to him and so there that mystery element i think of the film i can see why you're sort of like okay you know it takes its time it's kind of slow and when you know that we're going to have to deal with the reemergence of a character maybe that can be the, the tension in those earlier sequences is going to be lessened because we know that what everyone thinks happened didn't happen. But I like the way that the movie built with that mystery. I think it's also uh, worthwhile to point out that the it's another movie I remember distinctly. They really were pushing the trailers for this. In, in the spring of 93 and they were making a big deal about this movie and alien sort of fever was picking back up again, you know. It had been a big thing in the 70s and we were getting back into that paranoia and that paranoia from the flip side of, oh aliens uh are out there and we it would be great to meet them you know that we got a lot of that in the 70s and 80s and we were getting the idea of maybe the government is hiding this from us because we can't handle it because maybe the aliens aren't actually here to help us they're here to do terrible terrible things to us this is one spring and probably uh i know how it all lays out i've probably got to go back and check this out but the pilot for the x-files which comes up before the show itself kind of fully airs it's going to it's happening just about around this time same year probably the same season so alien the, the that kind of concern about things like abductions and probes and and and, and people being abducted was at a high level back again from the 70s at this point in time with an extra dose of paranoia in it and you're right as it gets towards the end it becomes much more like a horror film because if if what has happened happened that's terrifying right so i think it does work as a horror movie it definitely works as a sci-fi mystery as well i i won't say as much about it when we get back to it because we've already sort of talked about it here but i really like it i think it's strongly acted there are some good performances in the film there's a lot of faces you'll recognize as well henry thomas is in this peter berg is in it uh craig schaefer robert, robert patrick. patrick yeah uh, a lot of uh, a lot of either up-and-comers or and i think patrick is obviously coming off of terminator at this time but you know i don't think he was still quite that noticeable if you didn't immediately look at him and say oh that's the liquid metal guy you know james garner's in the film it's got a great cast it's a very interesting movie i think it 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 uh is entertaining as well but there you were right to say that at a certain point there is a sequence that i think the best way to put it is like this without being too spoilery is that travis walton there's a point when the character comes back and they can't remember what happened to them. And then at some moment they do remember and the flashback to what it is that they believe has happened to them in the period of time while they were gone is horrifying.
0: Yeah. You know, I don't know if this is just the movie or what, but you're talking about it here, Nathan, I'm kind of getting chills here. I don't know if it's the, the thought of the aliens in general, but I think I really clicked from this movie from the time that one character returns, To the end, I really liked it from that whole point on, which is probably about what half an hour or so. And I think that's why it, you know, bounced up higher in my list.
1: And it's true that the early going is not a horror movie in the same way. But I think what the early going does that's effective is it gives you the feeling of what it would be like to be the other guys. These five people or four people, whoever they are, the guys he's with and then he's missing. And then suddenly the whole town is looking at them. And sometimes you don't always get that where you this movie has the kind of your cake and eat it, too. You get the mystery perspective of these guys who lose this friend and they know that something very bizarre has happened to him. And then that question, well, what about the guy that it happened to? So those two sides, I think, are done very well. The problem is we're not the problem, but the sort of conundrum is that the first half isn't really where the horror lies. It's where the it's the mystery, and then there's the horror that lies in what actually happened to Travis or he believes happened to him.
0: Yeah, and I'm not to say any of that other stuff is bad. There's some highs and lows, I think, for me. But I was fully engaged once that character came back. So All right, Nathan, what do you have for number 15?
1: Okay, so number 15 for me, uh it's funny because I had originally said, oh well, we don't have any more anthologies on the list but I actually do have another anthology and it's a film that I feel like not maybe a lot of people have seen in in terms of that it was also directed direct-to-video and that I don't hear it mentioned a lot I'm really outside of sort of like real hardcore like horror anthology fans but this is called Necronomicon it's based off of H.P. Lovecraft short stories and it even incorporates H.P. Lovecraft in this film as played by Jeffrey Combs, and that's kind of cool. And, again, uh, Brian Usna is involved in this, and it's an interesting – we've got another three stories, and the directors on this are really, I think, what, what make this interesting because Brian Usna, we know of him, and you would, and if you were a sort of low-budget horror fan, you would have known of him here. He's worked on, a, on two or three of the movies we've already talked about. Uh, and in addition, he was he directed uh, two of the Silent Night Deadly Night films, the fourth one and the fifth one. And the fifth one popped up in 1991's list, and I can't remember you know exactly where the fourth one fell. But the here we've got Yuzna uh, directing a segment. Then we also have Christoph Gons, who later goes on to do Crank, Freeman, Brotherhood of the Wolf, and Silent Hill. And then you also have one that's directed by. The he's the guy who did all the Gamera movies, Suzuki Kaneko, and uh, he did he did the more modern uh, trilogy of Gamera films that came out in the nineties. And these three stories are very weird. They are adaptations of of Lovecraft, but with sort of in some cases modern twists. So we do get lots of tentacly wet creepy horrors we get cosmic horror in the sense of things from another dimension or maybe from another galaxy coming down and and doing untoward things to us we get some elements of body horror people striving to survive things that they cannot control that are happening to their own bodies i don't want to get into the individual stories because i think that they if you if you are sort of mildly familiar with the Lovecraft stories that they're based off of, you still can get some sort of uh, you know surprises in the way they're told here. I like them a lot. The, the practical effects are really good. The production values on this, I think, are really strong this movie looks a lot better than you're probably going to expect it to look and it's a lot of fun and i would say in this case even though each story isn't necessarily the same caliber i think and this is another one where clearly there's one that i think is a little bit better done than the rest i'd say that these three stories mesh together and and with a combination of that wraparound story that jeffrey combs is a part of i think with those pieces all put together and Combs is playing supposed to be playing H.P. Lovecraft. When those pieces all come together, it makes a pretty satisfying anthology in my mind, a better anthology than Body Bags.
0: Yeah. And I really uh, like this one as well. I think Kaneko's segment is my favorite of the three. And I think the first one, not the wraparound, but the first actual segment took a little bit of time to get going for me. I was kind of out of it, but once that one hit, and then I think the, I think all of them are pretty good after that. I mean, they feel that last one, especially feels like a, a tales from the dark side or a very, yeah, it has a very familiar feel to it, but I really like the cold. I think it's called as the middle segment. Um, But I, I think it's a very well done movie and I think it's acted really well. I mean, we've got a, a decent, you know, Unknown cast, I think, for the most part. But uh, we do have Yuzna in here as a cabbie. But yeah, I like Necronomicon. I hadn't watched it until recently here, but I think this is probably up there. Maybe the strongest for me. I'm trying to think of the 90s as far as the uh, anthologies go, because you're right. There's not a ton of them that came out in the 90s.
1: Right. Unless you're thinking about Tales from the Hood.
0: Have not seen that one. Yeah, we'll probably <laughs> but, you know, I've said that a lot as we've gone through these 90s movies, have not seen something and then I see it and then, uh, yeah, we'll we'll find out about Tales from the Hood. But um, I think that's a great choice, Nathan. I really do like that when I think Combs plays a great HP Lovecraft and it wouldn't be the last time that he would play an HP Lovecraft type character. At least I don't think so. Or at least in H. P. Lovecraft films, he was kind of the go-to for yeah. that.
1: Well, he he played. It's funny because he's he's played Poe a couple times as well, so he's got that vibe.
0: <laughs> yeah, but yeah. I really was not expecting much from this one, but ended up liking it a lot. And I think yep. that's the thing. Oh, sorry, go ahead.
1: I was just say for here from here on, I've got movies that even if they aren't great to me, they're at least solidly like pretty good movies. Uh, which maybe couldn't necessarily be said about my last five but here (laughs) I think we're the top 15 for me are all at least uh solid in some way so
0: and I I'm losing my train oh I think Yasna, I feel like I like a decent amount of his movies even if they're not the uh the best movies I think they're they're pretty fun when he does do something you know whether that's the crazy Silent Night Deadly Night 4 or something like Society or maybe another movie in this year that we'll be talking about but I think when Yasna does something, you can expect a certain level of schlock, but also a certain level of kind of base quality as well.
1: Yeah, for sure.
0: All right, on to my number 15 is one I know that we disagree on, and that is uh, The Vanishing. And yeah, this one has a pretty big cast. You've got Kiefer Sutherland, Jeff Bridges doing his best Starman impression, and uh, Sandra Bullock, who... Probably before she got into much, right, Nathan?
1: Yeah, yeah. I think this, yeah, she had maybe Love Potion number nine might have been one <laughs> of the other films to her to her credit, but this is right on the cusp because we're at ninety-three. And of course, ninety-four is when speed comes out. And her role here is is uh is minor. Yeah.
0: Yes, yeah. I would say Nancy Travis gets much more screen time. And I uh Nancy Travis of Probably, if you're a horror fan, Rose Red fame. Is there any other horror that she's done? Or I know so she's I been in like So axe I Married murder. an Axe Murderer. Yeah, Three Men and a Baby, same, that kind of stuff. Year.
1: I like Nancy Travis a lot, but too. horror-wise, you may be right about that in regards yeah. to the Rose Red. Yeah,
0: yeah. so I think what I liked about this one, and I think one distinguishing factor, as we talked about, is I didn't see the original, which was directed by the same guy. So very much like a uh, the grudge situation where the same director directed the original and the remake. Yes. So I didn't get to see that one. I didn't have any background on that. I just kind of went in cold on this. Uh, Jeff Bridges is definitely uh, making a choice with his performance in this movie, (laughs) I think. And I, again, Nathan, I think it has to go back to, I'm a sucker for just these thrillers. It doesn't matter how run of the mill. And I don't think this is necessarily run of the mill. I think it's very distinguishable from other thrillers of the time. I think maybe the differences in opinion for us is you disagree with some of the execution on that, especially when seeing the original myself personally, I just think it's a pretty, pretty good thrill ride and really gives you insight of a, of a guy who's just not ready to let go of something in Kiefer Sutherland's character here. And I think it went, um, I was satisfied enough by the ending and where it went in this movie, but again, that was just me going in blind to this one, not knowing anything of the original, and it makes my number 15. So anything you want to say about the the vanishing here, Nathan?
1: Yeah, this one did make my list, and I think the issue really is that from a certain level, this movie is a fine movie, like uh, it's it's made well, it's done well, but the fact that George Schluser, who's the director did the original vanishing in like 1988, which is one of my all time favorite movies and favorite thrillers. And what he does with that, where it really becomes this uh, existential crisis for this character who ends up not having closure on this relationship that his girlfriend goes missing. And then she never resurfaces and he simply doesn't know what happened. I think the thing about the vanishing is it's a, we just talked about fire in the sky where this is two kind of separate perspectives. You've got the guys who don't know what happened. Then you have another character who has that knowledge, but it's locked in his head. So it doesn't appear till later. The interesting thing about both versions of the vanishing is we, the audience sort of are made privy to at least having a pretty good idea of what actually happened to that missing person from very early on in the film, because we are allowed the perspective of this other character who we know is a killer right and mm-hmm. that decision in both films i think is what keeps it either one from being completely run of the mill but where i've got an issue and i love jeff bridges by the way is that and it's hard to talk about these with talk about this difference without spoiling the film but there is a fundamental difference and it makes all it makes such a drastic uh contrast is the way in which the killer character is handled because in the in the in the Vanishing movie, nineteen ninety three, the killer is instantly and recognizably crazy. He is visibly disturbed. Wouldn't you agree? Yes. Uh, he is not a. He doesn't even have the vestiges or the behaviors of a normal person. No. He is creepy. He's like you said. He, Bridges is making a choice. Sluzer's made a choice here too and I don't know if he's done it sort of just out of spite like he wants to make sure that the American version will never be as good as the (laughs) the Dutch version but his decision is almost antithetical to what the original film was in two specific ways one of those being the presentation of the killer. Mild spoilers for the original 1988 Vanishing. One of the creepiest ideas in that film is that the killer himself is a mild-mannered, normal person. Every bit is just ho-hum and, and, and get along with it as the main character of the Vanishing, uh, the guy who loses his girlfriend, because at some point something randomly that, that couldn't necessarily be prevented has happened to this guy, and then he goes into a different dark direction. There are scenes of, the, of this guy at a family picnic where everyone was sitting there eating and he's outside and he just looks like absent minded dad who's walking around sort of mumbling to himself and you know he's he's he looks like he's just caught up in his thoughts and he's moving around. And then what they what you realize as the viewer as here's a man who's practicing how many paces it needs to get close to a person, a woman, and then how he can wrap his arm, he's practicing the paces of three steps this way, turn, pivot, and then bring your arm in to chloroform them in the face.
0: Gosh, you reminded me of him
1: practicing in the
0: ninety-three yes. <laughs> version, not
1: And that the... happens too, but here he's he's in he's just a normal guy and his family and and here's the dad staying in the background doesn't seem like he's doing and then what he's really doing is practicing how to abduct the women and when you see that scene in the 88 version it's such a stark contrast because he is very nondescript and and it's not even that he's hiding a darker person underneath it's that he has made something is switched in his head and the it happens a little bit in the 93 version, but not as extreme. The the straight lace character who loses his girlfriend is the one who becomes deranged. He's the one that becomes driven. And their endings are drastically different as well to both films. Yeah, and so
0: I, I can't wait to check out that 88 film. Yeah. But you're when he it's very painful to watch when he's Trying to abduct women at a certain point in the 93 movie. It's yeah, like no I woman my would eyes. ever, even in 1993, yeah. no woman would get in his car. You know damn well that no woman nowadays <laughs> would
1: get in this. And, and that's car. my problem. And, There's, he's a leering creep in that version, and it makes it conventional. It makes it typically what you see from American film. Everybody is sort of just you tell the cast right from the beginning what kind of person they are. We know, and, th- and this movie ends on almost like a joke, like a literal like joke, ha ha, ha moment. And you're like, Really? After all of that? And the other one has a psychological existential crisis at its conclusion. So different that I feel like George Sluzer was just taking the piss when he directed this movie. Like he was literally like, watch me mess this up on purpose.
0: Yeah, it could be. And I think Nancy Travis's character is probably my favorite in this movie. I think she's the most grounded and the most. The one I feel the most sorry for, honestly, in this whole thing,
1: maybe. I mean, it's yeah. Anyway. And she does not exist in the other film. (laughs) Okay, okay, yeah. So, I I, again, it it might have even been on my list had I not known of the 88 vanishing. (laughs) Right.
0: Yeah, that's probably all I have to say on that one.
1: Nathan, you want to go into your number 14? So my number 14 is where we finally get back to talking about Stephen King, who uh, was really on a roll. I think at this point he'd had several... Movies from the 90s, his uh, sort of comeback was in full swing, even so much to the point that just a year or so before this, he had had a new novel that everybody was talking about. And he probably had another novel right around this time as well. I'm not sure. That might have been Gerald's Game, actually. But the one before this, that was a big deal. I remember when it came out because of how how popular King was and how his popularity had sort of uh, was resurging with it being on television in the early nineties and things like that. But this is needful things. And I remember when the book came out and then I remember later when the film came out, this is directed by Fraser Clark Heston, who is indeed the son of Charlton Heston. And in the film, he's, What he's done with Stephen King's story is he's taken it and turned it into something that isn't... Stephen King, I think, intended the original novel, *Needful Things, to be almost a little satirical. Sort of look at consumer culture. This is another story uh, literally about the devil setting up shop in a small New England town. In this case, Castle Rock. That was the big deal, too. This was supposed to be the last Castle Rock novel where so many of his other stories have been set. It was pulling characters from previous books, including The Dark Half which incidentally got a an adaptation the same year. And it's the devil selling things out of this little curiosity shop to people that they think they can't live without, and it, it sort of crystallizes in their minds what they need to make their lives good. And so when they get fixated on the object, Leland Gaunt, the devil, played with a ridiculously over-the-top performance in, a, in the best way possible by Max von Seedowl. The devil comes in and says, well, you can have this, but all you have to do is you do a favor for me. And he's essentially pinning the town against itself. And this this adaptation is filled with recognizable faces. Lots of character actors all over the place. J.T. Walsh is in this film. Amanda Plummer is in it. Ray McKinnon william morgan shepherd who plays and and don s davis play sort of two competing like one is a priest and the other one is a baptist minister and they are sort of at each other's throats ed harris is the star he, he wasn't he didn't again have all the clout that he has now but he's the uh, essentially the lead he's playing alan pangborn which was a character that shows up more than a few times in king's sort of castle rock tale but I like the movie. I liked it when it came out. My main memory is the scenes in the trailer of Cedow, who's who at that point has let his sort of English genteel nature sort of fall by the wayside into just screaming, kill them all. Let God sort them out. And <laughs> uh, which is the the primary bit of the trailer. I remember when it was growing up and it is interesting. I think that the movie still sort of ends up with explosions <laughs> <laughs> after uh, what it really is about but something again that i didn't know until this year when we were researching to watch this again is that there had been like a f- close to like a four-hour cut of this film made and uh sort of cobbled together and it ran on tnt that uh wasn't the one that the directors showed to everybody in theaters you know that was available for people to see so I like this version, this longer version, much better because it, it feel it was really turning it into a mini-series. And that was a big Stephen King thing, too, right in the 90s with the yep. Stephen King mini-series. And I think this is actually a pretty good one. Does everything about it work? No. Sometimes the story meanders here or there, and it doesn't necessarily hit all the notes of horror. But I really liked it a lot re-watching it, and I really was taken with the the Von Cedow performance, of course, but also Ed Harris, who's a little bit more reserved here as Alan Pangborn, who this same year, Michael Rooker played Alan Pangborn in The Dark Half. So you get to kind of compare those two if you want to. But I really enjoyed the movie.
0: Yeah, I'm shocked that this is so low on your list, Nathan. I think and I'm not going to judge you for that, but I think we <laughs> <laughs> just silently, I think that we both have that comfort feeling when we watch a lot of these Stephen King adaptations and this is no different I think this is actually an underrated one of Stephen King's adaptations you don't hear it talked about hardly ever and I really did we both watched that extended cut and I think not too long after we watched it they announced that it's getting a blu-ray release right or something like that
1: yeah yeah it is it's a it's a 4k coming out later this uh summer which is so great
0: timing so grab that and then <laughs> and the
1: director's cut will be on there as well it was literally like a week later i was like okay someone must be listening to us yeah <laughs> yeah and i think part of why it's not higher is i as i've mentioned there are several movies here that maybe end up being a little bit more horror adjacent and needful things honestly i don't find the movie very scary but i do find it interesting and it is a little bit long the 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 irony Mm -hmm. though is i think the added sequences help flesh the movie out some of what i got rid of honestly was some of the boilerplate sequences that existed even in the the non uh the not the non but in the non-director's cut in the theatrical cut there's a lot of divergence where it just sort of goes to the conventional right like so towards the end it sort of takes a conventional solution when the solution that would be in front of any sort of normal thinking person, they doesn't go that way. We decided let's have some explosions.
0: Yeah, no, I get that. And I, I just think from that first moment though, is that, um, von Seedell's character is so mysterious and so creepy. And I think that's part of the best part of this is him bringing these. It's almost like a monkey Paul situation, right? Is you, you want something, but there's a price for everything. And I love that first sequence, even though it is does fit into more of like what you were talking about with the explosions. But I think that sequence with that car is just so mysterious. And there's something about it. That's like sinister almost. And we get to see as this unfolds, how things go on. I, I love von Cito. I like how it fleshes things out as well in the longer director's cut. And I think that, you know, similarly to Salem's lot that did this, that had two different cuts. I think it does flesh it out more, but like you said, I think it takes a little bit of the horror aspect out of it, right? It's not as much of a horror movie when you have these long sequences of character building, but I love that, and I love the offbeat characters in this movie. I don't know how many times I have to say offbeat this episode, but I need a thesaurus to change things up, but yeah, I... I love Needful Things. I think I like it a little bit more upon a rewatch and certainly be hearing from that later. But yeah, this is a good one. I'm glad we watched that director's version. Maybe it would have been nicer to watch that in higher resolution than we did. But <laughs> but hey, we had to put out this episode sometime, right? Right. So is that all you had on Needful Things, Nathan?
1: Yeah. Yeah. Like I say, I think that uh, it's it's a lot of fun. There's a lot of characters and it's fun to see some of those character actors like J.T. Walsh and others like kind of sink their teeth into that stuff, including that scene where Ed Harris says to uh, Morgan Shepherd's character, who's the Catholic priest, it's like, well, father, the devil destroyed your church. And he says, it wasn't the devil. It was a damned Baptists."
0: <laughs> yeah, that's a good one for sure. And I, I love the characters in that movie, but I will be mentioning that one later in my list. All right, so my number 14 is one that's already been mentioned, and that is Man's Best Friend. And we've talked enough about this one, but it is just such a fun movie and such a crazy movie, and that's always going to score points for me. So I've got Man's Best Friend at number 14. What is your 13?
1: This is where it gets kind of weird. Oh, well, honestly, (laughs) this is where it gets weird. Well, weird in the sense of this is definitely where on one hand, this is not a horror movie, but it can't it doesn't exist if you were if horror doesn't exist you know what I mean like this yeah. is one of those movies that's pitched at a horror audience we've got some of the you know i mean again we're back to these same sort of uh a lot of the horror people are involved in this and you got Screaming Mad George getting some more work <laughs> with his special effects in this one. And in a movie that's not typically something like I think he would do. And I can't figure out if this movie's way high or way low on the list. <laughs> it's that kind of movie for me. I will say that for nostalgia purposes, and I don't know why this is, but I really liked this movie when it came out. And again, this is one I probably saw in 94 where, or maybe the summer of 93. It was released on VHS, and I don't know that any kind of theatrical release before this, but this is Freaked. It's directed by Alex Winter and Tom Stern. Alex Winter, of course, one of the uh, duo of Bill and Ted, the Bill and Ted films, which at this point there would have been two of them. And uh, what a weirdo movie this is. You've got <laughs> Alex Winter playing just kind of a uh, a schmuck sort of loser actor and uh and he got his buddy this little boy <laughs> who follows him around everywhere and then they're friends and then you've got th- these three and what is the kid's name melvin or something like that or uh, yeah they just
0: call him like a little troll i can't remember what his name. yeah is. and
1: like, he's like uh but it it has almost the feel of like a mad magazine send-up or something like the whole tone of this is very odd it's not that far off from like airplane or naked gun or something like and they run into this kind of like freakish like farm that's run by randy quaid who <laughs> like he seems like he's a this circus barker but he's really this mad scientist that has made all of these freaks and we're talking freaks like this is a movie where mr t is the bearded lady and,
0: <laughs> and keanu reeves is the uh the dog man or whatever yeah, yeah keanu said.
1: reeves is the dog boy and there's a there's a they, they introduce the frog man and it's just a guy in a scuba suit <laughs> <laughs> but he's like he makes horror noises and there's a caulking cow and there's a you know a a woman and a man melded together and uh the one of my favorite characters is Bobcat Goldwaith is a sock puppet. Yeah. Uh he's been turned to sock puppet and at some point you know when the when his sock is pulled off he's like he's screaming <laughs> because he's he's dying. But it's a very strange movie and Alex Winter's character uh, is sort of run through this mutation process. So half of him is this awful leaky gargoyle looking thing. And the other half is like normal Alex Winters. But wow, this movie is goofy and weird and silly and kind of like engrossing. It's it's <laughs> such a mess. There's a title track of the freak Henry Rollins is singing it. I mean, this movie is almost like the 90s just threw up all over itself. And I gotta love it for that. It is a weird movie. It's not again, is it good? I don't know. I kinda think it is. It's a very punk rock vibe to this movie. I mean, it is goofy. It's almost like there's moments where you feel like you're watching a bad kids' movie, and then other moments where you feel like you're watching just what a weird psychedelic like head trip. It is hard to define it. I don't believe it's horror, but I don't I think it is absolutely in the same way that Army of Darkness is sort of a send up of bad television and horror movies and sci-fi movies freaked is almost the same kind of thing.
0: Yeah, and I I'm so glad you introduced me to this one because I absolutely loved it. Is it great? No, but it's it's so much fun in that way that mid-90s humor I feel like only could be. And you forgot to mention someone in the cast and I think I know why you forgot to mention but Megan Ward who I like in this as a Pretty much a very stereotyped character, at least at first. And uh, she was not only was she in Arcade from this year, but also in Amityville 1992.
1: Yeah, you're right. I totally <laughs> forgot to mention her. Yeah. <laughs> um, how could that happen? Weird. I actually like Meg. I like Megan Ward. She was also in Trancers 2 and Encino Man and Joe's Apartment. And a lot, like the 90s were filled with me. Yeah, I had like a bit of a crush on Megan Ward. In the 90s. Yeah, there's a lot of people I didn't mention. Is John Hawks is in this movie. William sadler is in this movie Uh, morgan fairchild Fairchild, yeah the the one i thought you were gonna mention to say i know you mentioned was Brooke shields uh, oh
0: yeah i forgot Brooke uh, shields was in this
1: yeah (laughs) and and but man but this yeah randy quay this is like the high this is a high peak for him even more so than maybe like uh, this and kingpin yeah he feels so natural
0: <laughs> in this movie like it
1: <laughs> you know it's probably a reason i think that that's probably wherever randy quaid is right now he's probably doing this he's probably on a farm where he's just making freaks but um it's a fun movie even just talking about it makes me feel like i should have it higher on the list but it's weird it's goofy and it, it's definitely like it would have been very like kind of off-putting in the 90s when it came out like oh yeah this is opening scenes where, you know, the little kid character that idolizes him, he's just so mean to him. Like at one point he calls him to get like, he like gets kicked out of the like plane sucked out and you assume he's dead. And he's like, oh, well, he's gone.
0: That is such <laughs> dumb 90s humor. It's like yeah. a, a Matt Stone and Trey Parker and that type of. It's got that vibe. Yeah. Biodome. It's like that kind of terrible humor at points. But I think it's much better than a lot of that other stuff it's there are some bad moments in this movie for sure, but it's, it's so much fun and just seeing, you know, when they first get to that farm and how everything unfolds with that. And you've got, um, mega character saying like, Oh, she's out there, um, like protesting the dumping of like chemicals and stuff like that, I believe. And then she, they mention a freak from, she's
1: like, I love freaks. Let's pull over. Yeah. <laughs> well, And that's the eyes that are running around the giant, like, mutant eyeballs.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Oh, it's it's great and terrible at the same time. And I, yeah, this movie is so much fun. Again, I didn't even know Keanu Reeves was playing the dog boy until we got a little later in the film.
1: I was for sure this was going to be one of those movies. You'd be like, Nathan, why did you recommend that to me? I did not. I didn't (laughs) think you were going to like this one, honestly.
0: (laughs) Yeah, Uh, you never can tell, really, but.
1: Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I don't
0: know. There's something about this movie that's just so funny. And, you know, from the dumb gags and the way this movie ends is very, very interesting. The only the only way a movie like this could probably end. But yeah, I will be mentioning Freaked a little bit later on. But I'm surprised to see Letterboxd has this as a science fiction comedy and then horror that it does have horror on there and that comedy is not first, but yeah. Freaked is a fun movie if you haven't seen that one. And I think I, I never hear this one talked about, so maybe it's forgotten for a reason, but Hey,
1: chill. well, it's funny. I feel like this one, you know, it's this and lost boys that, that sort of have given Alex winter a road into being at these horror conventions. Yeah. You know? And this
0: is probably, I would say it's in his top two films that he's directed. I'd have to say, I mean,
1: how many movies is he directed to,
0: yeah, pull it up. No, I think I think the uh, Zappa movie is pretty well the documentary is pretty well uh, regarded. Other than that, he's done stuff like Ben 10 live action movies and uh Okay, see I that.
1: thought he did the Zappa movie and freaked. I thought that's all that he had done. Now, he's done some well,
0: other stuff but not much that I've heard of.
1: If you guys want to get this, it is available on Blu-ray for $296. Oh, yeah, I've got to get <laughs> that it's on DVD for $95. Uh, I'm assuming you did you watch this on YouTube or something?
0: Yeah, I definitely did watch it on YouTube. I think I can't remember where I found it, but
1: it is mind boggling to me that vinegar syndrome or somebody like that has not like snatched this movie up. Oh, and for sure.
0: It. Yeah, I w- I don't know. Maybe it's too high profile because this was Fox, right? They put this out, oh, yeah. I think. So that's a.
1: I'd order two copies. Forget I bought one, and give the other to you. Uh... <laughs>
0: yeah, I I think this was Fox that,
1: yes, it that is. distributed
0: yeah. this thing. And that's another problem is because uh, that's with uh with Disney now. Maybe maybe the rights have expired. I don't know where it's at, but somebody needs to put this out.
1: I can't see Disney doing much with this. No. <laughs>
0: uh, but so that's freaked. Anything else on that one, Nathan?
1: No, but see it. (laughs) Yes, absolutely.
0: My number 13 is another one we've talked about and another just fun piece of schlock, and that is ticks.
1: Yeah, we've
0: talked a lot (laughs) about ticks. Did you ever think that ticks would be this high up on my list?
1: No, I did not anticipate that you would have it higher on your list than my than There's my a list. lot of these
0: when I was surprised. I was like, What is Nathan doing? He uh he recommended these movies to me and I've got them higher. But I think that always happens. I feel like there's
1: I think what you're gonna see is that there is a there's definitely a, a choice I made in terms of films that aren't that that again aren't quite horror, that dominated the top part of my list and ended up with some of these movies pushed a little bit lower. But here again i would say this like i said when you get to the top 15 i think for me i'm in the solidly like i think all of these are good movies starting with a necronomicon on they these to me are solid films they're not just you know oh it's a fun movie and i liked it and there was nothing else i could put in this list yeah
0: i agree so what is your number 12
1: my number told this is where it gets tricky because there's like three or four in a row here that really are probably just about the same level where I could spin a coin and everything for the next about five slots could probably be interchangeable. This is one I like more now than I did when I saw it. And I did like it when I saw it. And it was sort of uh, at a point when we were seeing a lot of movies that were kind of similar. There were about three of them that came out at the time. We mentioned two of them, Army of Darkness and Dead Alive. Movies that were sort of taking that a different sort of tact with zombies and with sort of like splatter style horror, you know, and Brain Dead or Dead Alive, while original definitely sort of sprung out of like the Evil Dead 2 sort of uh, zeitgeist. And then of course, Army of Darkness was the sequel to Evil Dead 2. And then this movie was a sequel, a third film in a franchise. that also had been sort of, doing a lot of horror comedy and this is return of the living dead 3 brian usna has he been not in something i've watched in 1993 (laughs) is he not involved either him or screaming mad george did something return of the living dead 3 is the third film in a franchise where honestly at the time i saw it i didn't have the highest like i know this is probably blasphemy for some people who grew up who who love those return of the living dead movies at the time that i saw this one My opinion of those other Return of the Living Dead films, I liked them, but they weren't, wasn't that high. I have a much higher appreciation for them now, uh, and I really love Return of the Living Dead, and I love Return of the Living Dead, and I really like Return of the Living Dead Part 2. But I saw this film and sort of just took it as a standalone piece, and in its own way, it really is. It's telling a bit of a different story. In fact, this story is handled in a different, even a different sort of vein because you have a uh, no pun intended. You, uh, Melinda Clark and J. Trevor M. and Kent McCord and Sarah Douglas, this whole cast of people. Sarah Douglas was starting to show up in some kind of really like questionable, like what are you doing here <laughs> movies. But the story that they're telling here is almost a R- Romeo and Juliet star crossed lovers kind of story. These two kids that. They, uh, they're they trying to set out on their own and their parents are in their way and there's all these obstacles and then they get caught up in the midst of this plot line that dovetails with the bodies that eventually have come down from the zombies that were allegedly the ones in Night the Living Dead, right? So it's kind of these creatures that have been stored by the military keep popping up and getting people infected and melinda clark's character gets infected and then the lovers set out and she gets killed and then she comes back to life and now you've got one of these stories where the, the 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 two kids on the run are not just separated by all these other events they're separated by this barrier between life and death that she's crossed over the main thing i remember about this outside of a pretty gnarly like motorcycle accident early in the film is that melinda clark looks pretty hot when she becomes the dead zombie girl and she has you know pieces of glass and nails and all kinds of stuff sticking out of her i remember that being sort of like oh hey this is kind of interesting <laughs> you know it's one of those like, i hope this isn't bringing something you know <laughs> what is this awakening it's not in a me? freudian but, thing right no 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 it's like oh check that out this is this is new uh <laughs> but i think that this movie is a pretty good piece of slack, in, in my opinion it's a lot of fun. It's uh it's hard to put this to say, well, where does it fit with the others? I think the return lane did the original. It's hard to get past Lania Quigley dancing on those tombstones and her either punk rock get up or her birthday suit, mostly the birthday suit, but I still think that one is the best one. The second one is almost like a kid's horror movie, right? And then you have this one, which is very different. But I really liked it. And I think that. When you're comparing it to some of those other films that came out, like A Brain Dead, it just goes so full tilt that this one isn't at that same level, but it finds a way to kind of stand on its own. It's got some dark, weird humor. The relationship aspects of the story do sort of work. Like their road trip aspect, it's not... These characters aren't so incredibly dull that you're just waiting for zombie stuff to pop up, I think. And I think that uh, Melinda Clark's performance is is decent, like it works in the context of the story. And I kind of like her transformation into the zombie. I think it's a pretty good movie. It's definitely a better movie than it had any right to be.
0: Yeah. And I got to say, I revisited the original Return of the Living Dead last year and came up I was similar to you as I came up higher than I remember, you know, cause I kind of was down on a little bit and I rewatched it. I was like, this is a pretty good movie. This is a fun movie. And then I, you know, this movie went, if we were recorded this last week, Nathan, before I rewatched this, this was a very tentative number 20 on my list. And it's because I don't remember. Oh, go ahead.
1: Yeah. And I remember, that we were talking about, we kind of go back and forth and sharing like, oh, we just watched this. We just watched that. And I was like, you know, what's weird? We were ready to set a date. And I thought, I haven't heard Train mention Return of the Living Dead 3. I wonder if he's rewatched it. And I think I said to you, you should probably rewatch it before you do this, because that's what happened to me.
0: Yeah. And I when I think I when I originally watched this, it was very much like it was hyped up. People love this movie and love to talk about this movie. And I think I had a certain expectation going in and I came out and I thought this is just fine. And maybe it's the fact that I'm watching this with the other 1993 movies, but this has such a good, it's such a well-made movie. And honestly, it's went up a lot for me and it's jumped up my list to the point of I haven't mentioned it yet. So it went from being attentive to like last place on my list to jumping quite a bit. And... Yeah, I don't. There's just something about this. It's really cool to twist the take on the lore mythology because you know in the first movie it's what is it brains that take the pain away? Is that the line in that or something like yeah, it? the only yeah. thing that takes the pain away and then <laughs> or takes makes the hunger go away? And I this in this one Melinda Clark utters, you know, it's the pain makes the hunger go away. So I I think it's a very interesting and there are utters it. in this movie. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I I ended up coming up a lot on this. I really liked it. I liked the way the film was made. I liked how it progressed out. I remember a lot less of the, uh, what I remembered going into this rewatch was the stuff in the lab early on and the stuff in the lab later. And I kind of missed a lot of the bits in between, which is some of the best parts of the movie. And um, this does have a very off the rails ending that I think is very sad and but done very well
1: yeah it's weird how the movie kind of veers into the drama and then suddenly here's like snm zombie girl yeah
0: there, there's a lot of drama in this though and honestly i'm not huge into you know like the biker bad bad girl bad boy type stuff but that that motorcycle accident you mentioned that's that's pretty heavy that
1: hits pretty heavy yes. When you see Schlock and '90, Schlock and that stuff that was almost like direct to video, and this was put out, I think, by Trimark, and they had their like Vidmark label. And that's what this was. And they had a lot of stuff. They had a couple of theatrical films this year Leprechaun and Warlock, the Armageddon, which, you know, neither one are on my list. And this movie's a lot better than either one of those. Yeah. And it's a pretty good example, I think, of when we think of the direct to video. Like this was one. this is one of those staples where because it is a direct video, it's not it's not like a brain dead or one of those movies where it's really a sort of foreign import that, you know, ends up under one of these labels, you know, that was sort of just made outside the system. Like this is a movie that had to overcome all of those DTV challenges and is about as good as you could probably want it to be. Yeah,
0: absolutely. It's definitely gone up. I feel like if. I, I feel like we're in the minority of ones who were probably just okay on it before. Cause I honestly see so many people that like this one, but if this wasn't eluded your um, grasp till now, I say go and check
1: it out. And Vestron has a really good. Oh, Vestron did one of this. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. They did. It's weird because, uh, scream factory Shout factory released the first two. Yeah. But Vestron is the one that did the, this one. And yeah, it's a really good release and it looks stunning and she looks stunning in the uh in the upgrade. Yeah. what did you think of her getup? I was a big fan of her getup. I mean not the biker bag. Yeah, I didn't like her.
0: I feel like yeah, I don't know what it says about me, but I feel like she um yeah, got better as the movie went on, I will say. Oh yeah for sure. (laughs) By the
1: time she was in full blown like pincushion mode, I was totally in
0: Yeah. I I just like how it slowly unfolds that stuff though because well it kind of slowly unfolds it and then there's one scene where it's just like whoa, what happened? but you see right slowly like cutting and doing little things like hiding it at first. And then it gets worse and worse. It's like, but that almost is like a, a drug very, addiction.
1: That's an interesting take on the zombie thing is the idea that you're becoming numb, right? And like all this stuff is setting in as rigor mortis and all these things are happening to you. And you're, you're trying to, you're doing anything you can to still feel and have sensation. I thought that was a really interesting way to go with it. Yes. And made some, and I think that people could look back to something like return of the living dead and say, well, You know, how could you do something different with the genre, the zombie genre? I feel like today they don't ask that question. They just do the same old thing. Yeah,
0: yeah. There are some uh, out there doing it different. but Mostly it's just the same old standard stuff. And I think this is even a twist on. I mean, Return of the Living Dead was a little bit of a twist. I think this is even a twist on that. Yeah. So, yeah, I do like it for that. But uh, anything else on this one, Nathan?
1: No, no. Um, I'm almost surprised it's this low.
0: (laughs) Yeah. So my number 12 is going to be another one that you're not a fan of. And this is the one where I said it was an erotic thriller. I don't know if it's really up to that standard, but it is The Crush.
1: Oh, yeah, yeah. See, I don't know. Yeah, I don't think erotic, because there's not... It's got the plot. It's got the premise, I should say. But I don't think it quite goes that way.
0: Yeah, and I hate to say even in that vein, because even though there is some of that kind of stuff going on, I think like <laughs> Alicia Silverstone in this movie is uh, not of age. So I don't think it quite gets there, but I just, and again, we've talked about the, I've talked about the thriller thing like three times in this episode, but I like the cast in this. You've got um, Carrie Elwes and Alicia Silverstone, who I'm really big fan of. You've also got Kurtwood Smith and <laughs> Amber Benson in this. And I think pre pre Buffy yeah, pre Buffy. So. And I like her character a lot. This for some reason, she's not in it very much, but yeah, I just like how this unfolds and you've kind of got Alicia Silverstone developing this crush on this writer who's living out back. And she's got a very scary father in Kurtwood Smith here, who I think does an excellent job. He's very much playing his best um red uh foreman. in this, I think as well to a point.
1: Yeah. Who would, he would have been mostly people at this point that would have known him for, uh, was it the character from RoboCop?
0: (laughs) Yeah, yeah.
1: It's villain Boddicker, Clarence Boddicker. I had just seen him in the Stuart Gordon movie, Fortress, right before this one, or maybe around the same time this movie came out. Uh, And this is Alicia Silverstone. This is either right before or right about the time that most uh, probably young boys my age would have been discovering her in those Aerosmith videos. (laughs) And just a little bit before Clueless.
0: Yeah, a couple years later, she'd be in Clueless. And then she would play, you know, what was that Batgirl? And Bat-
1: yeah, yeah, sure. That's what happens. Yeah, Batgirl coming right from England with no accent whatsoever.
0: <laughs> uh But anyway, I don't I don't know what it is about this. I do like the kind of tension drama that plays out in this one it's not quite to the, I feel like it's the light version of what we would see later with uh, something like wild things.
1: Well, it's point around this time. And I don't know if you remember them or not. And I think they might've been slightly earlier. There was poison Ivy with drew Barrymore and Tom Skerritt. So, and that one definitely ventured more in because of where jo- drew Barrymore was at the time. That one definitely ventured more into the erotic thriller aspect. Again, even that would have been a mild, like a mild, you know, but, yeah, I don't even think there's is there any actual like nudity or anything in this film. I don't, I don't think yeah. so.
0: I'm tr- I'm trying to remember. It doesn't stick out to me if there was. You're definitely not going to see any from um Silverstone although there are some scenes where she's taking a shower. I believe, which is a little unsettling given the circumstances, but
1: There's another movie she makes around the same time called The Babysitter. And, and where she's at the center of, and there's a lot of like leering male characters, including JT Walsh, who we talked about with the evil things. Yeah. Yeah. I couldn't ever get in. I remember when this was released, I remember this kind of being uh, not a big deal, but just, you know, it's like, Oh, it's a psycho young girl. And uh, usually the girls that are in these sorts of stories are a little bit older. So there's that aspect of it, but yeah, this one never really kind of worked for me It's another movie. I feel like of the good son where, On paper, it seems a lot like edgier or crazier or more like salacious than it really is. And then when you watch the actual movie, it's sort of like, well, this isn't really taking that many chances or this isn't really doing that much with the premise. Yeah, but come on. There's a carousel in an attic, Nathan. That's that's weird. Yeah, that's weird. That's kind of V.C. <laughs> Andrews is a carousel in the attic. I would totally give you that.
0: <laughs> yeah, uh, I don't think there's anything that much like the temp. I don't think there's anything that really stands out except for Silverstone. But. Who I am sure you maybe as well had a uh, crush on at the time,
1: watching things like going
0: back and watching things like Clueless when I was growing up. But
1: oh, for sure. Yeah. And then and then I think I sort of retroactively realized that she was in this film.
0: Yeah, (laughs) so anyway, I liked it. I think you're going to dig it if you're like a thriller fan or you do like those types of 90s thrillers, but don't go in expecting anything groundbreaking or revelatory out of it. All right, that's my number 12. What do you got
1: for number 11? Okay, so for number 11, I have a... We're right back into Stephen King territory again, and this is interesting because this is a movie. There were probably, I feel like there were, there were more than a couple Stephen King movies this this year, but I think that maybe a couple of them were actually ninety two. Uh, one of those being Pet Cemetery two, and was, is am I right about that? Yes, that well, that was I think 92. we talked about that ninety two. Um, yep. Children of the Corn two, I think might have been a similar case. There's a lot of Stephen King stuff floating around. The interesting thing, though, about this other film, which is *The Dark Half*, and directed by George Romero. Now, I knew of George Romero back in the in 1993, and I knew of *Night of the Living Dead* things like that, but I wasn't like a George Romero mega fan in the sense that I knew was absolutely aware of everything that he had done and you know stuff like that. So, *The Dark Half*, being directed by Romero, wasn't necessarily a draw for me at the moment i didn't think i was aware he had directed it also i was a big stephen king fan but the thing that really made me excited about this is when in the sixth grade when i finally got around to a you know an adult probably inappropriately giving me this book too early (laughs) or a stephen king book too early as it seemed to happen to almost everybody the dark half of all the stephen king books happened to be the one it was handed to me. I had never heard of it. I knew of it in Cujo and Carrie and all of that. So I was like, and it was relatively new at the time. And I didn't know about the dark half and that I remember that summer after sixth grade, sitting down in air conditioning all summer and reading that book and kind of being blown away. Cause that was my first exposure to the written work of Stephen King in, in novel form. And uh, man, I was so excited for this movie to come out. And I missed it at the theaters. I didn't see it at the theaters. I did see it when it came on uh, video. And you've got, it's got a great setup because you've got Stephen King writing about a guy who created a a pen name, just like Stephen King himself did with uh, Richard Bachman. Kind of as a a publicity stunt, killing that character off, only to have him manifest himself in the real world and actually show up and start killing people related to his quote-unquote death and timothy hutton is in the film just like you mentioned he was in the temp here he's playing two versions of himself and the uh and one of them is uh, richard stark who is the alter ego you will and thad beaumont is the author the primary guy and the cast is great uh, and i really like timothy hutton here playing the two different versions both thad and then richard and Amy Madigan's in it. Michael Rooker is here playing the same character that Ed Harris plays in Needful Things, Alan Pangborn. And I, I like I like what Rooker's doing here. This movie, is this movie as good as Needful Things? Uh, Needful Things is much more, I think, the typical sort of Stephen King miniseries. But I like The Dark Half better. As a horror film, I actually think that it's it's a little bit underrated. I think Ramiro does a good job of it. One of the things that's difficult is Stephen King has a couple of flourishes that he wants to build into the story to sort of help make the idea of, I think it's another film that could have almost kind of tipped over into satire. He wants to take that idea of the pen name come to life that has got its own autonomy and then give it some horror Storyline or horror imagery that will make us take it seriously. And so he creates this idea of these psychopumps, these, they're they're sort of harbingers, they're winged birds that show up and kind of seem to be around in that sort of viewpoint whenever Richard Stark is around. And so those birds and what eventually happens with them. And this idea of traveling back and forth between the land of the living and the land of the dead. And then what does that mean? If you are just a, a pseudonym, how can you be real? And there's that creepy moment at the very opening of the film where doctors are doing surgery and suddenly they see an eye blink open in the back of the kid's head. Like the, I think Ramiro does a great job with the story. It's just, as you get towards the end, it gets weirder and weirder until you reach this crescendo of what the heck is going on and nothing feels quite real anymore. But I think it's a pretty good movie. I revisited it recently for this episode, and uh, Ramiro does a really nice job, I think, directing it and making it a good horror story.
0: Yeah, and I love the the dual roles here by uh, Timothy Hutton. And I think Rooker plays a very toned down character especially when he would be in some of the later like james gunn stuff and all that
1: well and even earlier you figure that rooker at this point would be coming off of stuff like henry portrait of a serial killer
0: yes but even that's like a more um i feel like that's a less bombastic
1: role that he would play in later that's true but here he's the hero and he's the, yes. he's the he's the you know if not not even the hero that's really that's really uh timothy hutton but he's the good guy who's sort of anchored at a point where he needs to be the straight laced, no nonsense. I'm going to help you get everybody through this, and it is even more—it's more subdued in a lot of ways than Ed Harris's portrayal of the same character in Needful Things.
0: Yeah, and I think he does a good—he wo- does a good job here of because we have almost an unreliable narrator going on in this, at least for a little bit of time. And I think Rooker does such a good job of balancing, like, "Hey, I'm trying to help you out, but I'm gonna need you to help help me out here to keep you out of this situation." And yeah, that that eye scene that you mentioned, the whole thing that went on when he was a kid, and the use of the sparrows in this is very, yeah, we just don't know what's real and what isn't at points. And I think it's almost done. Uh, these murders are done in a very pulpy manner and it's almost like they're out of a giallo or something and sometimes when we're seeing this stuff i think the story gets to that level of insanity at some points and i just think romero does a really good job here this is one of his few non-zombie films and i think he absolutely delivers and i love the dark half this has been a movie i'll definitely talk about this later this has been a movie that has been with me for a long time i have a lot of nostalgia for this one. But I think watching it back, it holds up, in my view, to any of the other top films of 93 as far as horror goes.
1: Yeah, it's very solid. It's a very good movie. It was just, just outside my top 10.
0: Okay, well that is the dark half. I can promise you you'll be hearing a little bit more about that later. My number 11 is one we've already mentioned, and that is Necronomicon. I won't get into it too much more, just to reiterate that I do love that middle segment with David Warner in it. And uh, yeah, I think it's a solid anthology movie overall. So that is my number 11 and we can go ahead and move in to our top 10s here. Okay. So Nathan, what do you have for number 10?
1: Okay. So number 10 is actually a sequel to a movie that the last time we did this, when we did 1991, uh, this movie was on my list. I actually, I don't believe it made the top 10. Uh, but that was a different year. I will say this. My top 10 are all, in my opinion, really solid movies. They're really good. I do think the last 10 we just talked about, variance in quality. But I wholeheartedly recommend everything in my top 10. But my number 10 is a horror comedy, more, much more comedy than horror. In fact, the horror is probably only surface level. But this is Adam's Family Values. And it is, of course, Barry Sonnenfeld's follow-up to the original Adam's Family, I liked the original Adams Family in terms of the design, the character work, and the world that they had created, where it was like a little bit like Tim Burton, but just a little bit more sarcastic than that. And, you know, a, a kind of weird mix almost between Naked Gun and the original Adams Family and Tim Burton. Adams Family Values, though, to me, I think, is an altogether better movie because they find more interesting things for the Adams Family to do. And. The idea, of course, was in the original concept that pretty much you had everybody is normal, but the Adams family is still a play on a, a traditional family. They're just a little, they're just a little weirder, right? And so you kind of have to put them in the scenarios of the real world and its mundanity to really make it work. And they had this weird plot in the first movie that dealt with missing uncle fester they have a weird plot here we have joan cusack in here as a sort of gold digger that's trying to take uncle fester's money and there's a subplot where the kids wednesday and pugsley get sent to a summer camp that's amazing and almost in some ways seems like it might have been the blueprint for what becomes wednesday (laughs) but i love the movie i think it's really funny it is not scary really in any way but this is what i said earlier in the show that you get some of these movies that they can almost only be fully appreciated by fans of horror. That was what the original Adams family was. That's what this is. I think it honors everything Charles Adams had going for it. And it takes that premise and makes a real movie with real characters out of it. And it's very, very funny in my opinion. Yeah. I wasn't sure
0: where you were going with this when you said a sequel to one of our 91 movies. Now this one's not going to make my list. I haven't seen this and it's an, entirety in a while nathan i feel like i've catch bits and pieces of it every uh october or november whenever they play it on tv all the time but yeah i didn't know about this one i didn't get to re-watching it and i didn't necessarily consider it horror so i decided i would you know go for lesser movies and put <laughs> the <laughs> top 20 together without it
1: <laughs> and i think it's fair i just love this movie it is a regular staple of our viewing and again like i say it takes the tropes the horror tropes and and kind of runs with them i think it you know it belongs here because where else does it really belong comedy yes but i I do think that if you're a horror fan particularly if you're a fan of the universal horrors and things like that you're going to appreciate a lot of what the adam the old adam family did and this and again that cast i think i mentioned last time was a they put it together perfectly here they actually give them something to do and actually, some of the best characters aren't the Adams family. It's when they get to that summer camp, and you have Peter McNichol and Christine Baranski as these absolutely crazed uh, summer camp counselors that are that are putting on a play to commemorate the uh, the first Thanksgiving. So it's both a Halloween movie and a Thanksgiving movie.
0: Yeah, and I that's a pretty iconic scene there at the the camp too, and I love that um, part of it. But yeah, I gotta. I got to sit down and watch that fully. I feel like this October, whenever it comes out, because I, I catch bits and pieces of it every year,
1: but I haven't seen the whole thing in a while. Yeah. You need to revisit it. And the actress who plays harmony on Buffy, the vampire slayer is here. Oh, she's yeah. she's Wednesday's nemesis. Mercedes McNabb. Yeah. <laughs> Oh, cool. Yeah. And I don't I don't think I've seen the
0: original in like decades. So I've got to maybe do a double feature. those. I know you said you like this one better, but
1: they're, they're both good movies. I think this was the this is the best Adam's family thing they've done. I really did enjoy Wednesday, though.
0: OK, well, cool. Is that all you got on uh, Adam's family values?
1: Yeah, I did. There's not much more I can say. Just go check it
0: out. <laughs> yeah. So uh, my number 10 and we've got a pattern here is. Uh, a repeat, and it is Return of the Living Dead Part 3. Nice! I
1: Higher than it was on my list.
0: <laughs> yeah, and it was a surprise because we were talking, and I already had mentioned this, but I, I didn't even want to include this on my top 20, and then I think both of us went up so high on it on a rewatch. It's just, I toyed around with moving it a little lower, Nathan, but then I was like, well, this is a better made movie and a more enjoyable movie than some of the ones under it, so... It somehow snuck its way in the top 10 and um, not uh, saying it's not cr- that credit isn't due because I do think it's a really uh, it's a pretty it's a really I don't know if I want to say it's a really good movie, but I think it's a really good horror movie and it's fun and entertaining. It's really good of its kind. <laughs> yes. Yeah, it's not the original, but yeah, it's pretty good, especially for 93. So. That is my number 10. I
1: wouldn't be surprised if you, knowing your taste, if you didn't like part three better than part one, honestly.
0: I Surprisingly, I don't. I, you know, and mentioned earlier, Nathan, I think I was so surprised at how much more I liked the first one when I rewatched it last year. So, yeah, maybe more on that to come in the coming months, but <laughs> I'll keep that under wraps. Yeah. Uh,
1: I, do, I do think the first one is the best. And then then maybe this one. And then the second one, the second one's almost could almost be a kid's film.
0: Wait, are you saying I'm edgy, Nathan? Is that what you're trying to no, say? No, I'm,
1: I'm not saying you're edgy. <laughs> what I mean is I know that you're you, you sometimes favor more straightforward horror than horror comedy.
0: Yeah, sometimes, but sometimes not. And we'll uh we'll talk about that <laughs> here coming up. But yeah, Nathan, what is, what is your number
1: nine? So my number nine and I had one of these on my list in 91 as well. This is Godzilla versus Mechagodzilla 2. The uh this is this is a movie that takes all the elements you'd expect from a Godzilla movie and the elements that to be fair were not successful in some of the Showa-era Godzilla films mm-hmm. from earlier and kind of blends them all together. There's a lot going on in this movie, honestly. One of my favorite reviews on Letterboxd says this title is just lazy. They could have called this Godzilla, Rodan, and Super Mecha Godzilla, Giant Monster All Out Custody Battle. And uh, <laughs> which, strangely, is actually not wrong because all of this hinges on the return of the baby Godzilla, the kind of Godzilla Saurus, yes. which is notorious as being like one of the most like hated of yes. Kaiju, as far as I'm aware, uh, and particularly the way it's included. Now, I don't mind Minya or Manila or whatever you want to call it that much better than godzuki but that's a different story and but <laughs> they the, des- bad, godzuki. the design doesn't look great so here they really do sort of correct it because the new gods the new baby godzilla is kind of cute and cool but still kind of a monster right like you can see yeah. how he's gonna the other thing is i didn't see how the little the little guy that spits the smoke rings turns into godzilla eventually and this movie is in you know this series and where its trajectory is headed it's essential that we can believe that this little Godzilla will turn into one day, the big Godzilla and you know, mm-hmm. take up the mantle. So I like that. Rodan is awesome in here. I love the more def- the definition. The wings are not great, but it's it, like, it's, it could be more flappy, you know, I, mm-hmm. um, but I love the design. Godzilla has like, like diamond skin or something. <laughs> like yeah. How he's, he's very sleek and very cool looking. The Mechagodzilla is really awesome. And then, you know, it has the little ship that like it becomes like shoulder guns.
0: The, uh, isn't it called like the, um, the G
1: something. I don't I Yeah. The, the G is the later one, but what is it? It does have a name. It's. Oh, the, uh, the Garuda. Yeah. The and Garuda. so okay, yeah. the Garuda comes down and hooks onto the shoulders. And I like, I like everything this movie is doing. It is stuffed to the gills. A lot of it makes about as much sense as a normal Godzilla movie, but you can't say it's not action-packed and it doesn't sort of like in the in the the logical world of a God Toho Godzilla film, I think it's uh it's it's it works very well, particularly for the high sea era. It's not my favorite one, but they give you your money's worth, and particularly with the redesigns on the classic creatures, they do three of them here. And I think they improve them all in different ways.
0: Yeah. And you don't have to sell me because I'm a huge fan of the Heisei era Godzilla films. Those are what I grew up with. But the interesting thing here is the continuity because uh, these are all a series, but you know where we had kind of just Godzilla versus Mothra and Godzilla versus King Ghidorah before this is, Godzilla versus Mechagodzilla 2 when we've already had two Mechagodzilla films before this and uh, right. I I love it. I love the naming. I I would also go for the custody battle name. I feel like that's very authentically Japanese naming conventions.
1: Yeah, because Rodan is trying to like protect baby Godzilla. Yes. Godzilla's <laughs> after Godzilla, Mechagodzilla. Like...
0: Rodan's essentially like that's that's Rodan's child. I I love that they put Rodan in this one. And I got to say this is probably between this and Destoroyah are the only two Godzilla films where I actually like Godzilla's offspring. I think it's an interesting twist. They do also with the, yeah, you know, I'm not a huge fan of his awkward years in the uh, space Godzilla movie, but you're too hard on that movie, but <laughs> I, yeah, I probably am. I, you know, I stopped myself the other day, Nathan, somebody, uh, I follow this account on Twitter that always asks, you know, what you're seeing from this favorite Godzilla movie. And they had space Godzilla and, I had to stop myself from putting
1: the end credits. Oh, but, uh, it is. I think you need to rewatch that one. I, I think you need to do a return of the living dead three on that one and rewatch well, it.
0: I just watched it last year. Now, I, I will give it another shot. I might have been in a bad mood. But the what I love about this one is you also get a new twist on Mechagodzilla, too, because it's kind of a weapon of the state instead of.
1: Uh, this imposter Godzilla that comes out of the yes, and that sort of continues through to the next series of Godzilla films as well. And I like that. I like that it's almost like that Pacific Rim deal, right? Like there. Yeah. Uh, God Mecha Godzilla is a weapon that we've created to combat Godzilla. It makes a lot of sense. It makes a lot more sense than what Mecha Godzilla was used for in the in the older Showa era films. That's not to knock it. I mean, these movies are all essentially silly. This one's yeah. essentially silly too. But, you know, it gives you your money's worth for a Godzilla film.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And I, I do love the, the older two Godzilla films just because of how crazy they are. You know, with Titanosaurus and um, King Caesar and all that stuff going on. But this is a great pick. I feel like we could probably talk about Godzilla all day, so we should probably move on. But I love what they did with the new classic creatures and even the new creatures they did in this Heisei era. But... Yeah, this is a good one if you haven't checked it out. All right. So my number nine is one you've already talked about, and that is Freaked.
1: <laughs> wow. Horror comedy. <laughs> there you go. I guess I have to take back what I said. <laughs> yeah, eat that, Nathan. Um, no. I'm I, sorry. You like really dumb
0: horror comedies. <laughs> this is like brain dead horror comedy. <laughs> but not brain dead. The Peter Jackson movie. <laughs> Or not brain dead as in the, you know, the zombies in Return of the Living Dead. Yeah, yeah. I I didn't expect at all to like this, especially the way it opened with, you know, Alex Winter and. Oh, I'm blanking on her name right now, Megan Ward. But, you know, I just loved as it went along and it's really dumb, but I thought it was really fun. And again, Randy Quaid and his magnum opus here doing the role he was born to play. So yeah, that is my number nine. It's a really fun movie. It is.
1: All right. What is your number eight, Nathan? Okay. So my number eight is, uh, you know, and you could probably make the point that the last two uh, and the next one, and maybe the next one are not legitimate full blown horror films, but this one is Ray Bradbury's the Halloween tree. And it was not a theatrical release, but it was a like a Halloween special that released on Halloween day or thereabouts, like if not on Halloween day, like a day or so before, in 1993 on TNT. It was an original film and it was animated, and but Rape Bradbury was narrating it. It's a story of these four kids that one of their one of their group is sick and he's actually, they notice him leaving his house. There, They go to trick-or-treat with him. He's not available because he's that sick, and they see him run away from his house holding a pumpkin. What they find out is it's not him. It's his spirit, which has vacated his body because he's that ill, and it uh, runs away down the the, uh, street. They follow. They come to this house that has a tree that has all of these Halloween jack-o'-lanterns with various faces on them, and they meet Mr. Moundshroud, who's sort of a dark wizard who talks about the fact that all these uh, these pumpkins represent souls, and their friend Pip has, his soul is now Mr. Moundshroud's custody, but Pip has run away with his pumpkin, and so now Moundshroud has to sort of chase him throughout time, and he takes the children along and sort of teaches them about Halloween. So it's educational, too. But uh, great voice cast on this one, Leonard Nimoy's Moundshroud, Again, Ray Bradbury's actually narrating it. There are a lot of uh, kids' voices that you would you'd probably recognize. The animation is is really fun. It, I feel like this was the era, this was right around the time that Batman the Animated Series was playing on TV in its first run, in its first couple seasons. The animation style is something akin to that. It has a very classical look, but uh, with some beautiful painted backgrounds and visages of that really capture the autumn and Halloween. And that's what this movie is to me. It is just a love letter to Halloween in all of its forms. We see the kids kind of run through ancient Egypt. They run through uh, Day of the Day of the Dead. They go through ancient Salem and all of these different places and look at the various facets of Halloween. Uh, But it's a fun, engaging story. The book was great. The movie's great. It is definitely a film intended for kids, but it's been made with the kind of care that allows adults to watch it too.
0: Yeah, and I didn't get a chance to check that one out. It looks pretty cool, though, um, and I don't
1: think it's it's only like an hour long or something, right? I think it's. I thought it's a bit uh, longer than that, but I'll be honest. what I it's uh, it's seventy minutes, so you know, honestly, about the length of a of a nineteen forties horror film, right? Yeah, yeah. So a little bit longer. You're right. It's not much longer than an hour. This is one that, I, but again, I don't believe this is has a Blu-ray release or anything, as far as I'm aware. I don't. I have think it on. So, though. I have it on DVD. I put it on every year. We kind of put the projector in the yard in Halloween night and we air, we play this and a couple of other movies. Uh, but this one always goes up and it's one that a lot of people come by and ask me what it is. Cause they haven't seen it. I mean, for a long time, it's the kind of thing that's probably being sold at the bottom of a Walmart bin, but yeah. it, it won some awards, uh, TV awards when it came out, I think maybe an Emmy and it's, it's great. So I highly recommend it, particularly if you like animation, the Halloween tree is one to one to see.
0: Oh, I would definitely make sure to check that out at some point. I think I might have had problems finding it, but I can't remember now. All right, my number eight, and I think I finally get to talk about a movie here. Is <laughs> is Dark Waters? And oh, nice. This is one that I had I hadn't seen before. I'd heard a lot good about, and definitely from you. And I cracked open that All the Haunts BR set. That's on that one, right? It is. Yep. Okay. Okay. I thought so. I (laughs) thought I thought so. You know, I'm cracking that thing open for these episodes pretty much so far. I know I did it for Clear Cut, and I think that was about it. A great
1: copy of this one too, and I had not seen this film until I watched it on this set. Okay. Yeah. This one. This one's
0: crazy, and it's about a girl who's going to this island to kind of track down her friend who she heard from, and it's like a, a convent. Here, uh, you know, nuns everywhere. And she gets there and kind of goes on this journey and starts learning about her past. And this thing's pretty insane when it gets there. And it makes sense that there was an Italian director who was at the core of this. I know it was a co production amongst several different countries, but you can feel the Italian horror in it, especially that late 80s, or early 90s Italian type horror. I feel like you wouldn't be remiss if you thought this was a Michele Suave film or something.
1: It has a you know that's a good comparison. It feels very much like one of his movies.
0: Yeah. And and as she gets deeper and deeper into this it just gets crazier and at one point, you know, there's a nun set on fire. I don't know if that's a spoiler or not. Or An old lady, I can't remember if she's flaming a nun or not. flaming nun. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, but it's it's crazy. It's a great movie. If you I think this is probably one that people haven't necessarily checked out. I know it was on Shudder for a while, so maybe they have. But you know, people tend to go after a cult classic that's on Shudder as opposed to if it's anywhere else um, I found. Yeah, but that is my number eight.
1: Yeah, good pick. I will be talking about it shortly. <laughs> I assumed you would be. I was just hoping I'd beat you to the punch. <laughs> you did. You did. <laughs> oh. Well, the one thing I will say, you know some people who listening who don't know what the movie is, and they hear you say there's nuns everywhere. These are not like just Franco or Jean Roland nuns <laughs> no, no, no no, these are scary nuns. these are probably like yeah. the nuns that you had in school growing up, yeah, times ten times yeah. ten these We're are r- rabid nuns, <laughs> these are medieval nuns they are yeah, they're very cool though they're they're very cool, yes, yep. Okay, what is your number seven? So my number seven is a movie you've already talked about. It is Fire in the Sky, and uh, we we and it's it's so high because I think the effect that it had on me. I was uh, and I still am, but growing up and around this time and and some of the years before this, I had been in middle school. I think it was in eighth grade around the time this movie came out. So I had years and years of reading any book I could about cryptids or alien abductions or any of that kind of stuff again i think i mentioned earlier this was right before the x-files comes out this summer and uh this movie just hit like all the spots for me i the the, the trailers captured me the the weirdness uh and then that based on a true story like i was whether i believed it 100 or not i was totally in for it and it does go a little slow but i was i was pulled into the story like i mentioned earlier of the guys that have to deal with the fact that the friend's gone. But when you get to those sequences you're talking about later in the film, absolutely terrifying, nightmare fuel, I would argue, I'm looking at the whole list and everything I have left here, the scariest piece of a movie in 1993 was In the Fire in the Sky.
0: It absolutely is. I agree with you there. That's coming from someone who had it, like, what, I don't know, seven spots lower, but I Uh, absolutely agree with you. The, The
1: whole movie works for me, the performances, the 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 development of the story. It's not perfect, but I think as a lead up to where that's where the story ultimately goes, the rest of it complements nicely. Yes. Yep. Absolutely.
0: So my number seven is one we just talked about, and I think we talked a lot about it. So I'm not going to go back into it. And that is Godzilla versus Mechagodzilla 2. And I think the one thing we didn't mention is the director, uh, Takayo Akwara, is pretty famed Godzilla director. I mean, he did Destroya, he did Godzilla two thousand, Godzilla versus Mothra, and Nathan one that I know you're not as high on as I am, but um, Orochi the eight headed dragon from ninety
1: four. I like Orochi. It's 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 a silly little movie. I think I think we've had this conversation. You you you're like I know you don't even like it. And I'm like I I like that. It's an eight headed <laughs> dragon. What's not to love?
0: Well, I probably say you don't like it because I give this thing like a nine nine point five, and you're probably at like a seven or yeah. Not, yeah I'm not nine point five. I am
1: 95 i do not remember what I was exactly, but I it's a fun. The cool thing about this one is it's it's a uh, it's actually really good. Like as I'm looking back at Orochi, I I Orochi, I wouldn't have any problem giving a rochi like a in in the eight area because it's a fantasy okay. story uh, it is yeah it, it kind of meshes kaiju we're talking about movies not even released this year but it messes hey, next year next year yeah uh, it's not, yeah. It's not it, it, <laughs> it, uh, i don't know it might be fun it depends on how rough 94 is you know uh but the monster movies they're monster movies although i would argue that orochi is less a monster movie and more of a sort of uh it has elements, adventure. yeah, yeah. Fan the kinds of movies that China was making a lot of around this time, and this is Japan sort of taking a stab at that same sort of thing.
0: Yeah, but uh, yeah. Enough Rochi. We've we've probably talked about this before, um, but we'll definitely probably be talking about it again on the next one. So, Nathan, I'm gonna shut up. And
1: what is your number six? Well, this will be easy because my number six is Dark Waters. I do love the movie. I love the crazy nuns. And I think the thing that we didn't really emphasize here is like this is really like a subterranean horror film. Like a majority – when you get to the island, a majority of what happens is under the ground, right? Or in these sort of like weird subterranean convent and then even lower. And i do not sure if you mentioned it, but it's very Lovecraftian.
0: No, like, I didn't mention uh, that,
1: but yes, it is. Like it goes much more Lovecrafty, and I mean, when we get to the final yeah. scenes, I was like, "This is almost as good a movie dealing with Lovecraft's mythos that that part of the of of his uh, work than lots of movies that have just straight up tried to adapt that." And it's funny because we have a couple here that actually like between *Necronomicon* and *Dark Waters*, these are not bad. HP Lovecraft related material even though dark waters is not based off of an actual lovecraft story but you've got a lot of his vibe i'd argue dark waters feels more lovecrafty than the necronomicon
0: yeah no i would say it is especially yeah we didn't talk about that ending but that ending's pretty uh pretty rough um, in a good way, in a very good way. But. Yeah, it,
1: it goes to some crazy places, but I will say this. This actually has a good story. There's an interesting mystery. The mystery is developed. It doesn't go where you think it's going, and it reaches a conclusion that is both open-ended but satisfying. Yeah, absolutely agree with you, Nathan. That's a big. That was a big surprise for me. Uh, I mean, I knew it was good before we planned to do this, but when I discovered it like a year or so ago, I was kind of blown away that I had never – heard of the movie before.
0: I think I I thought I had heard of it, but there's also like four different horror movies. There's like a Korean one. I think there's a
1: well, There's a difference too, between sort of hearing that there's a movie, you know, I'm sure I heard of it, but I didn't hear people talking about it. You know, I didn't have, I didn't see it on a lot of lists of people recommending it. I never had anyone personally recommend it to me. And so that's kind of what I mean is like, until it was on that Severn box set, I was sort of like, what is this movie? I don't really know it.
0: Yep. No, agreed. I didn't know really anything about this movie, so was glad to watch it and glad you uh, mentioned it. I think I had it on my list anyway, but um, either way. Okay, my number six we've already talked about, and that is Needful Things.
1: Wow, that's high. Yeah,
0: yeah. That's awesome. Well, we've talked about this before, about both of us having kind of comfort movies and Stephen King stuff, and this was one I had watched earlier on, I probably watched this in the early two thousands or so when I was digging into some King stuff and yeah, it's just stuck with me. I like the director's cut that we talked about a lot more and yeah, I don't really have, I think we extensively talked about needful things earlier, but yeah, it might be a little high, but honestly, Nathan, a lot of these movies are, could have been interchangeable.
1: Yeah. That's a long way down. Yeah. Same here.
0: Yep. But, Okay, what is your number five?
1: Yeah, I'm sure this is where we start stepping on our toes all over the place. This number five is a movie that I I love this movie. It is really the beginning of a certain director's career, Mm. and it was not a movie that I was blown away with instantly, but it stuck with me for a very long time. And that is Kronos, Guillermo del Toro's Kronos. It's, it's very interesting because it's essentially a vampire story. And Kronos takes place in modern times after this introductory scene where we kind of see this device that has inside of it uh, some sort of ancient insect that when it the device is attached to your body, it does a transference of sorts where it trades your blood for its blood again a very classic sort of vampire motif and while it gives you immortality of a sort it also begins to sort of steal your humanity and your immortal life is not all that it's cracked up to be and so there are uh, creepy scenes of this this uh, elderly antique dealer who comes across the device he and his granddaughter discover it he ends up in Sort of accidentally, at first using it, and then it's not long before he's licking blood off of a bathroom floor, and it goes from there. And it focuses in on the sadness and the sort of uh, loneliness of the vampire. But then the in the juxtaposition of Frederico Lupe, who's the main star here, and his relationship with his granddaughter, it has a certain tenderness to it uh, that you don't always see in. Vampire movies. Ron Perlman's here as the villain. He's clearly kind of been ported. He was doing a lot of this stuff at the time. He does this this year for Del Toro, uh, and he ends up being a lot of Del Toro's films. And then Jean Pierre Hunet, he does uh, City of Lost Children in a year or two after this one, and he works with that director a few other times as well. So I I love that about Perlman that he just didn't, you know, he didn't try to star in every American movie. He also tried to star in every international movie in in the 90s. But he's really good here. He's the heavy, but he, to me, is not the main draw. It's uh, Lupe, and I. one of the things I've always noted about him, he shows up later in Del Toro's The Devil's Backbone, which I think is even stronger film than this one. He, mm-hmm. Does he strike you, Trey? He kind of strikes me as sort of the Mexican Christopher Lee. <laughs>
0: Yeah, yeah, that could be it. I, I don't know if he's definitely. <laughs> I've never seen him with red eyes and fangs, but. Well, um, no, no, no. I,
1: and, and I think if you look at his role in The Devil's Backbone, it's more I think it's more obvious that. And I, what I mean is the latter day Lee, the kind of roles that Christopher Lee was playing in his latter years that didn't involve comic books or hobbits, it, it was this kind of a role. He has that sort of presence to him, I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And uh, again, he is a vampire. in this this particular movie, but I love it. One of my favorite sequences, it's so sort of touching and it kind of brings me back to one of my favorite movies that I know Del Toro's a fan of, The Spirit of the Beehive, because it captures that childlike look on things where he is turning into a vampire and the sun is now uh, harsh and it, it destroys his skin. She... Carrie, she kind of brings him up and puts him in her toy box and pushes him to the corner of the room so the light can't touch him. I thought that was a really kind of touching way to deal with the concept of grief in the midst of a vampire story.
0: Yeah, and I love the relationship between those two. I think that's probably one of the best parts of the movie. You know, I don't think this is as strong as Del Toro's next two Spanish-language films, but it's still a really good start and a pretty pretty good debut well, and those next two are almost
1: masterpieces. You know what absolutely, I mean? It's like, absolutely. yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. And there's a lot of good stuff here. I love that he he ne- hardly ever when he's doing something that's not Hollywood. Does something that's just overwrought and overdone. He's always trying to put his kind of twist on something. And it's never just straight horror. It's never just straight you know, drama, there's always like fantasy thrown in most of the time. And he definitely has that here, especially with the way that you become the vampire. There's the rivalry that goes on between our main character and the uh, other elderly gentleman in this one. I'm blanking on his name right now. But the Ron Perlman stuff's great going around, you know, asking people about his nose and everything like that. So, yeah, I like Kronos
1: a lot. I think it's a great debut for Del Toro. And you can see that fascination that Del Toro has with fairy tales to the point that this year he made, or in my opinion, a great version of Pinocchio. That fairy tale element is right here, front and center in his first feature film.
0: Absolutely. Anything else on Kronos, Nathan? No. Okay, you're right. I think we are going to be stepping on each other's toes, but um, not quite, because I don't think you've mentioned my number five, and that is um, Abel Ferrara's Body Snatchers.
1: <laughs> uh you you lucked out i was i was swapping number four and number five around quite a bit
0: <laughs> uh, well yeah well, we can talk about that next because i don't think either one of us are gonna be talking very much for our number four <laughs> yeah i this is a take on the um you know the invasion of the body snatchers the body snatcher type thing this is really like the third adaptation of that or Configuration of that one, and I I'm a a minor fan of Abel Ferrara. I like some of his stuff. I think it's cool. This is probably my favorite of his, and it takes this body snatching thing and puts it on a military base. And I just really like how this whole thing. It's pretty. Really, it's kind of campy, right, Nathan? (laughs) When you get down to it, do you mean this film or this this, the concept? This film. Well, I guess in general, the concept
1: is kind of campy. But I don't uh, think... Go ahead. I, I guess it is. He, In some ways, this one's less campy than the other... Or, or it has less sort of camp fixtures than the other two movies. I don't think it's yeah. quite as good. But there are some things it does better.
0: I don't know. I just felt at times like the tone was a little... Um, over the top and that's okay. You're right though. There's a lot more thinking back of over the top stuff in the other two films, especially that seventies one that's camp city. So yeah, I point taken there, Nathan, but I like the cast in this one. I like how they, when they are revealed and the body snatchers start to slowly get revealed. um, I just like the way this plays out. I've watched this a couple times now and I wasn't sure this was going to hold up when I rewatched it, Nathan, and it did for me. So it lands
1: at my number five. Yeah, and this one jumped to four for me. Similar thing. I remember enjoying it. I remember really liking it. But I had I I hadn't watched it in a long time. And the the military base setting and everything didn't do much for me when I saw it in the 90s. But upon the rewatch, I realized like some really interesting things that Ferraro is doing with the story. And the storytelling, and here's what I think is fascinating: is there are a lot of different versions of body snatchers. You know, Mm -hmm. we have the ones that are straight up called the body snatch, invasion of body snatchers, invasion of body snatchers, and the body snatchers, and those, each one of those three movies is really excellent in its own right like i mean i think they're great films i think my personal favorite is the 78 film i feel uh, like
0: that's my least favorite of the three.
1: Oh, really well see yeah. i like because i like the way it sort of takes the elements of the 50s it takes sort of uh, the paranoia and everything's going on in the 1970s and it mixes them together with this sort of also there's a certain sense of wonder and and sinister elements to to the film Yeah, does it get weird? I mean, the stuff with the dog and the human head switch, like, that stuff's weird. I'm not sure where it fits in exactly. But uh, then the original movie that's kind of like, you know, it's it's operating off of the Cold War and off of the Red Scare and everything like that. So they have built-in elements of paranoia. What I think is interesting about the 93 movie is the covert nature of it, right? Like, it's an infection of sorts in the other two films. We watch it sort of kind of... Peel its way through the populace, through the intellectual elite, and all of this. And here it's sort of hiding out on a military base, right? Like, yeah. and and that, so that in that sense of what was going on in the '90s when we were we were in the paranoia in a different way. Again, X Files is huge on television. We don't trust the government. We we're we're questioning the the military apparatus and all of that stuff. And that's underneath everything that Ferrara does here. So I think that works. That setting has it, which was usually around this time is all about rah rah, you know and and a lot of like jingoism, and it's the opposite in this film. The film is, is there's a there's a cast glance and a look over your shoulder every single step of the way in this movie. then it does get very dark and it kind of abandons even sort of the fun who's a body snatcher and who's not of the older films because it becomes like. A far more desperate scrabble for survival, and there's a point when the when the survivors get a chance to take revenge. That's you know it, it it plays with facets that we hadn't seen before. Here's why I think it's it's absolutely sits with the other movies. Is it's so creepy? Jennifer Tilly's sister, Meg Tilly's in the film. She is incredibly creepy uh in a certain parts in this film. And here's what I think is really weird, and probably where Ferrara comes into the equation is. The other films, we get hints and we see somewhat of what it be, means to become a body snatcher. It looks like a really crappy way to go. Uh, it's not a good experience. But it is excessively bizarre <laughs> yeah. and kind of nauseating uh, in this film when we see uh, what it, it entails. And it's very alien. It's very strange. I love the movie. It's just a dark kind of – it's even a little mean-spirited.
0: <laughs> yeah. Well, and, you know, one of the things talking about that, and I'm not going to get into too many details in case you haven't seen this, but I love what happens in some of the failed conversion attempts, too, because that's pretty creepy and unsettling as well.
1: Yeah, it's in it's see the failed conversion attempts in the older movies were where you got the kind of camp. Right. And you're like. Well, what happened there? That's kind of again, yeah. The 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 hobo and his dog having their heads exchanged. I'm not even sure how that happens, but <laughs> you're right. Here, it's far more unsettling and chilling. There was like, there was unsettling, chilling stuff going on in the other two versions, and I do think that this is not quite at the level of the other two, but it's pretty close.
0: Yeah, and I think I'm thinking of a scene specifically in a bathtub where the just the tension in that scene is great, and just everything they build in there is creepy and. <sighs> Yeah, it's it's a good one. It's a good one. If you haven't checked this one out, this is probably the one of the three I would say most people probably haven't seen.
1: That bathtub scene is where this one for a moment surpasses the other ones. Yeah,
0: (laughs) that's a good scene. But yeah, anything else on
1: um, Body Snatchers? No, except go see it. And honestly, it was a big surprise to me that this one hit. They do another one later with uh, Nicole Kidman called the The Invasion. Yeah. i didn't really care much for that one uh it was fine i guess but uh, these three are where it's at yep absolutely as far as the titled ones now i like some of the other ones that aren't
0: necessarily titled like but... the
1: seed people <laughs> or or the <laughs> puppet masters with uh the bait was technically based on a robert Einline story but it's <laughs> essentially another body snatcher movie no i was thinking about snatchers from 2019. Snatchers. Okay. I forgot, have forgot you seen about that one? that one. Yeah. I have seen it. It's a, uh, yeah.
0: Yeah. Anyway, they're, because they're kind of a dime a dozen, things like Assimilate. Um, but anyway, we're not talking about those. We're talking about 93. So, so that's your number four then, Nathan. So we went five, five. It four is on my number one. four. Yep. Mm-hmm. We went um, four or five on the other one because my number four is Kronos. And we just talked about that. So, really like that movie. And yeah, we could have, could have had the same number four and five. But so far, I don't think we've. Uh, overlapped on a single pick
1: it was very close I made the decision while we were sitting here to swap those yeah
0: yeah that was yeah uh, what could have been <laughs> all right what's your number three Nathan I
1: don't think I have this one this no, is not. this is the least horror on my list that people are thinking well damn you know if it's not Adams family and it's not an Halloween tree uh this is a movie that is truly the case of it is not well, you know what? I'm not going to say it's not scary. It's it, it has a certain scare element to it, but it doesn't relate necessarily to the horror. But it is all about the love of horror movies in a way that very few movies, uh, I think, have captured it in a way that spoke to me at the time I saw it. This is Matinee from 1993, Joe Dante's film that's really, on, on first glance, it's about this guy, Art. Arthur Wolseley, who's basically a stand-in, you know, people keep saying, oh, you're like Hitchcock, but uh, he's less a Hitchcock analog than he is a William Castle analog. That's really sort of, uh, he's, a, he's a showman, he makes schlocky, junk movies on the on the outset, but they're movies that strike a chord, and he's very much about doing uh, sort of gimmicks in the theater. So if you go there, you might have buzzers in your seat, all this kind of stuff that William Castle did. And at the same time, I go back to William Castle movies, and yes, the Tingler they shut the lights off in the theater back when that movie played. They gave, they had the ghost vision and 13 ghosts. But I love those movies to this day. There was something about them. And that's what we're kind of uh, – John Goodman plays uh, – I said Arthur, but he's Lawrence Woolsey. John Goodman plays Lawrence Woolsey, and he's so good in the film, but he comes into town with a new movie. It's in the 1950s, but it is also right during the Cuban Missile Crisis. And that's what the film's really about, is the, the potential and the fear of what would it be like to be on the precipice of what could have been nuclear war. And that's where the horror element of the of the movie comes in. Not that this is scary in any way. It's a coming-of-age story with a very gentle and sort of fond look back, uh, as a lot of Joe Dante movies are. Joe Dante, uh, even in Gremlins, even when he does go horror like The Howling, there's always a sort of uh, charm and a a good-natured feel to his work. And that's here. You've got Kathy Moriarty is in the film, too. Omri Katz, who at this point was probably had just come off of doing Erie, indiana with joe dante is <laughs> in this film he's primarily the uh have you seen did you watch that yeah, it's a good show. yeah yeah it's a good show so if you the kind of essence that was in Erie, indiana is in matinee have you seen matinee trey no
0: i didn't and i wasn't sure this was horror so i didn't fit it in but i love joe dante
1: i mean you know that you know yeah. i love small soldiers and the whole well and this is yeah the cool thing about this is you see so inside of this movie you have a it's a movie within a movie and you have the movie that Lawrence Woolsey has made called Mant and it it's a guy turning man into Ant. the mant yes yeah exactly <laughs> and uh but it's great because you see and on the the ray i have they've assembled all the mant pieces to make a full mant movie you know a little short film but you get to see this movie playing while it's in the theater and a lot of the plot involves Woolsey trying to come into town be the showman and run this movie while the Cuban missile crisis is literally happening. So the anxiety and the paranoia is at the height and he's got people dressed up as ants running through here, but he's, you know, he doesn't realize that the ant he's hired to run down the aisles is really this other girl's jilted boyfriend and so, you know, it's like a little bit of American graffiti. You get the black and white mant movie which looks so much like a cheeseoid 1950s movie just sort of just fall in love with it immediately it's it's uh it's it's great at one point they say uh what what is it they're they're talking about something and he's the mant and he turns around and he's like how could you love a how could you love someone like this and his claws sort of you know it's it's moving all around (laughs) and it looks goofy but it's like jante has paid special attention to all of the uh all of the details that would go into making a movie of that era you know it it, it, sometimes when we see people try to copy those movies it doesn't always like come out right you know it it seems like they've tried too hard but Mant see (laughs) Mant feels very much like a movie that might have existed at that time a little a little over the top but not, but not too much. So if you haven't seen it, I highly recommend it. This is a movie that is, you know, if you are a fan of horror movies, particularly the movies in the 1950s, if you are familiar with famous monsters of film land and stuff like that, if you've watched movies like them and the monster that challenged the world, then something like the matinee is right up your alley. And I feel like no one talks about it, really.
0: They don't. And I remember seen this in the video store when I was younger. I obviously wasn't you know knowledgeable enough when the when the movie was coming out and things, but I do remember seeing this one in the video store. And I need to get to this one because this is one of my Joe Dante blind spots. And I think I will. Just a matter of when, but
1: yeah. Well here's the quote. Here's the quote that makes the, the movie man. She's uh she's trying to talk to the doctor and and her husband, who is now turning into the man, and she says, oh, Bill, if you could just listen to the man inside of you and put the insecticide." And Bill starts screaming, insecticide, where? He's freaking out.
0: <laughs> uh, you know, we you say that's goofy, but uh, is it any goofier than
1: the ending of the fly? Well, so, if that's I mean, my point. Take- <laughs> that's where that's the tightrope walk, which is it's goofy, but it isn't out of the question for the time frame. And that's this whole movie. It's a legitimately great movie, but it's what is what's it about? It's about a world that was on the brink of of nuclear war, which is terrifying. People building bomb shelters where they would expect to live out an existence beneath a charred earth. At the same time, we're rushing out to see movies where giant rubber insects are sort of clamoring over cities. It's a time I can't comprehend. I mean, we're living in our own extraordinarily weird times. But uh, I just feel like it's done with such affection. It's done with such care. doesn't matter that it's not a full-blown horror movie. I, anyone listening to this podcast, I challenge you to watch Matt, Matinee and not love it.
0: No, I think I will enjoy it, but there was a lot of that going on, right? With like popcorn and stuff earlier that we talked about on Uh, one episode.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And, and and so, and there's, this is a perfect, this is actually to be fair, this is a perfect double feature with something like popcorn, but whereas popcorn was more of a horror film. I mean, you could say it was legitimately a horror film. I think matinee is a better movie because it understands some of the tropes, not that popcorn didn't, but I think it understands the tropes of these kinds of films and the appeal of these kinds of films. Just a little bit better
0: no that's fair all right well my number three and please um before you rake us over the coals for saying we'd have too many non- horror movies on these lists uh you go try to watch you know 25 30 movies from uh 93 and make a <laughs> make a pure
1: well, mystery, you, you yeah you want to rake us over the coals go watch matinee first and then come back
0: watch matinee and then watch the uh the uh Ruggiero Deodato classic the washing machine <laughs> But no, my number three is probably one that's going to surprise you, but it's one that I have a lot of nostalgia for, and I really grew up watching, and that is The Dark Half. And this was one of those movies where I started my comfort movies with King. This and like Misery and things like that were ones I watched early on. And yeah, I've seen Dark Half so many times, but I haven't seen it in a while until this time, and I was pleasantly surprised that it did hold up because I don't think a lot of people probably hold this as high as I do but that's okay
1: no it's a good one it's a legitimately good movie and I kind of forget about that every time and then I go back and watch it and I'm like yeah this is good
0: yeah yeah and we talked a lot about it but you know Michael Rooker and Timothy Hutton just a good cast in it but all right Nathan I think our number two our one and two are the same but go ahead and hit me with your number two
1: all right, yeah my number two is I made jokes about it earlier when with my number 20, I think. But yep, sixty-five million years ago, dinosaurs getting hit by the comet, going underground, developing alongside human beings, and then they meet two plumbers from Brooklyn. It's Mario Brothers. No, no, it's not <laughs> Mario Brothers. That's a horror movie of its own. In a different in a different concept. It's probably more of a horror film than some of the movies I have on my list. No. Yeah, it's another one people could probably criticize if they want, but this is Steven Spielberg's Jurassic Park. This dinosaur content, as I think I said, when we talked about Carnosaur, was so thin in the years leading up to this. If you were a dinosaur kid, a dinosaur fan, it was hard to find media that, in mean, any media that took that to try to use the dinosaurs for thrills, was very hard to find outside of like the Harryhausen movies from earlier, and then any movie with dinosaurs was not, you know, you had like the 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 Jim Hansen dinosaur show on television. You had Baby, the Secret of Lost Legend, but they, nothing was happening. <laughs> and then Michael Crichton comes out with this book, which isn't just about dinosaurs, but it's about a thriller where we the man builds a park where genetically engineered dinosaurs are back and alive, and then everything goes wrong. I remember getting a book in sixth grade and reading through all the, the sort of science jargon just to get to those moments, where now there's a living, breathing T-Rex attacking things. And when this movie was coming out, it's another deal of like, well, that's not going to be as cool as anything in my head. What's the point? And then Spielberg goes, bam, drops this thing, and you know, it's it's beyond what I would have expected. I'm not, you know, you can talk about the uh, adaptation, and I don't think we need to talk about Jurassic Park in any kind of way in terms of the plot. We know what the plot is, uh, but as an adaptation, it's just a thrilling piece of movie making. This is a monster movie. It's a science fiction movie, sure. It's about dinosaurs. Some of the things that I think maybe keep it from being a really great science fiction movie, like where it where it does become sort of an eating machine, are what make it a pretty solid horror movie, or at least a, mo- a solid monster movie. If, if movies like Godzilla, if movies like King Kong fit in this list, then this one absolutely does. That scene when that uh, T-Rex bursts through the fence, and that entire uh, sequence involving the Jeep, I mean that you you tell kids who had nightmares from that crap for years that that's not horror (laughs) but it's not just that scene then we get into the velociraptors later but it is couched within a movie that has a lot of facets it has the wonder of the dinosaurs i don't think the, the the sequels captured the wonder of the dinosaurs these dinosaurs still look better in this film i saw this movie i've seen this movie several times in the theater in years past anytime i get a chance to see this movie in the theater i take it i saw it the drive-in in 2020 and it was as thrilling and more thrilling than watching the the jurassic world dominion or whatever that came out last year uh and the dinosaurs still look better this is a, a almost perfect thrill ride
0: yeah and if i can get up on my soapbox first a minute I don't think anyone ever talks about this being a horror movie, but there are several scenes of intense horror. And I watched this. uh, You probably find this hard to believe since I was three or four at the time, but I watched this. My parents have confirmed close to when it came out. Um, I was as obsessed with dinosaurs as you were. I probably watched this on video, but there are scenes when, uh, you know, there's an overturned truck with the T-Rex. There's a couple of scenes with Velociraptors. There's one in the main building and one when there's a power situation going on. There are several scenes of horror, even the beginning, the opening, and then the I'm trying to think, even when something like they feed the raptors or anything like that, there's just so many scenes of horror and like terror and stuff in this movie. And I don't know how anyone could sit there and say this doesn't belong on a horror list, even though, like you said, there's a lot of adventure stuff and, you know, just plain action movie stuff thrown in this as well. But I think there's a lot of horror in here. And it never gets talked about as a horror movie. You know, people like to talk for hours and hours about Terminator being a slasher, but they never talk about this movie or, you know, they debate whether the Predator is a horror movie or not. I think this has almost just as much credence for scenes of terror that are, you know, more impactful to me, at least, than a lot of those other
1: movies that are on the fringe. Well, and and here's my thing, and I, you know, just take my card away. I don't know. What I like is when a movie is not, is a horror movie, but not just a horror movie. I, li- I like a movie that's just straight horror. That's fine. But I don't need that to fully enjoy something. Jurassic Park's a well-rounded film, I think. And it is definitely, its structure is very interesting because it is structured, literally, like a theme park ride. There is a lot. What I love about Jurassic Park, here's the deal. If this movie had been made in the 1950s, it would contain Almost all the same components. It would be able to be placed on a list of horror movies. Uh, but Jurassic Park contains a lot of science gobbledygook, right? It spends yeah. the first chunk of the movie explaining how the dinosaurs were recreated. And it does so not by trying to fiddle it into the plot. It just has you go through the amusement park ride and hear the <laughs> literally <laughs> hear the spiel that Hammond has put together. But it gets you into that mindset. It lowers your guard. It prepares you to be astounded. That brachiosaurus, when it just steps out there and then you see that plane with all of those uh, other dinosaurs, the hadrosaurs and the, the the brachiosaurus grazing and all the things that are going on there and the wonder. And, and again, what a weird offbeat cast. Like this cast, someone, someone recently pointed out, it's like, think about this. Like when this movie came out, Sam Neill was known for movies like Possession, right? And oh, yeah. Laura Dern was Blue Velvet. Jeff Goldblum was the fly. I mean uh, – I
0: don't know if I'm more creeped out by Possession or Blue Velvet. Like just
1: – Right. These are weird, eccentric actors. And, the, and and Neil would have been probably around the same time than The Piano. So it's like these, the, the, what's going on here is – and then they end up in this PG thirteen dinosaur film. I just think that sometimes it's been viewed as, and I think not so much now, but when it came out, people were trying to hold it to the Spielberg standard of Jaws. Like, let's forget that the movie he made right before this was Hook, which you know, I know a lot of people love Hook, but I'm you know Jurassic Park is a huge step above step up from Hook, and of course it gets overshadowed because he does Schindler's List the same year. Yeah, yeah, but <laughs> Jaw, but. But the, the, I think Jurassic Park has earned over time its reputation. It is built in the same uh, the, the same mold as Jaws. And then I mentioned seeing this at the, at the drive-in. It was back-to-back this and Jaws. So it was really cool to see those two movies and how he was attempting the same thing, adapting a book of a very specific kind, and then – creating these thrillers that are survival horror on one end. And at the same time, trying to to have almost a naturalistic feel dealing with, with a scientific, almost a could be part nature documentary and then part horror movie.
0: Yeah. And I got to, I got to back you up. You talked about the science gobbledygook. And I mean, that's just Michael Crichton, right? Yeah. I, I like you in middle school ran through the gamut of Michael Crichton stories And some of those are a little harder to get through than others, but uh, I can guarantee you this film is a lot more fun than reading Jurassic Park. But even though I do really like the book, yeah, I will be talking about this one a little later. So I don't want to say too much, but um, anything else you want to say on Jurassic Park, Nathan?
1: No, just that. I mean, it's a great movie. And here's the thing is you don't. This is one of those films that is, I think it like Jaws. It has become sort of timeless because It is, Even though it has special effects that were amazing at the time and could be seen as maybe a little dated now, I think they still look wonderful and they still work and they do not break the reality of the movie. Even that kind of wonky shark in Jaws doesn't break the reality of the movie. There are not many, even great movies that are now 20, 30 years old that the same can be said for. Very rarely do you have a film where the visual effects and all the pieces still work so good that you're completely in the illusion and you still are in Jurassic Park. Yep, absolutely.
0: So for my number two, and this was a hard one, Nathan, because the two at the top are two movies that I, some of my earliest film watching memories are coming from. And it was tough to rank the two because they are all time classics in my book. But in the end of the day, there was just no beating dinosaurs for me. And my number two is The Nightmare Before Christmas. (laughs) And yeah, this one is just kind of a, a masterpiece of this type of film. I feel like, you know, you've just got this fantasy world of Halloween town, which is probably any kid who's into Halloween, any their fantasy growing up, right? You think about something like this And all the cool monster designs. And they're all gross and ugly. Because they're done in that style. But they're just so cool. And it's different right. It just looks visually striking. And visually different. And you've got Jack Skellington. And this whole spiel. About going into the other holidays. And going into trees. And I love that shot in the woods. Where it's just all the different holidays. On these trees that he stumbles upon. But The imagery in this film is incredible. The story is pretty simple and straightforward, but very engaging as well. And I just love all the little things about this. It's hard to talk about this in a movie so iconic as this one. And you you have things like Oogie Boogie and all these different weird cast of characters. I've absolutely loved it since I was a kid and it's never really left me no matter how many times I've watched this. It's been really fun showing this one to my daughter and her trying to pull an oogie boogie into the cart when we're in the we're out shopping for Halloween mm-hmm, stuff somewhere. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I don't know how much I can say about this one. This has just been one of those classics. Now, if you're talking about its horror cred, I mean, I think there's some <laughs> some horrifying scenes for sure, especially when these toys are coming to life. At one point in the movie. And I think everything kind of looks, like I said, gross
1: and grotesque and everything. I'm going to put it this way you walk through, and I've been through a lot of them recently. You walk through any horror convention, I challenge you that you will probably find more Jack Skellington's than you will mm-hmm. find Freddy Krueger's sitting on the shelves of the various shops and the stores and on yes. the artwork. Uh, oh, it's yeah, everywhere. Yeah, it's yeah.
0: everywhere. It's in the mainstream stores, too. It's not just. No, no. But my point, point is specifically
1: yeah. in the within the horror genre. I mean, these are iconic characters. This is a yeah. great story. Uh, and of course, there's no way this obviously didn't make my list. This is my number one. Uh, yeah. My number and I, one movie. I'll
0: say, Nathan, on your point, too, is like. This may not be considered a horror movie by some people, but it is certainly loved by horror fans first and foremost.
1: It was made for them. These top three were movies that I felt like were made specifically for me. I, here I am in eighth grade and I'm coming to these movies. I'm like, oh, I, I wish I'd had these movies like five or six years ago, but I'm glad I have them now and I will always have them. And uh, yeah, and honestly, an amazing triple feature in my mind would be Nightmare Before Christmas, Jurassic Park, and Matinee, and, <laughs> and all three of them like they really just took me right back to that place of in different ways. The Ray Harry House and those the, and the Willis O'Brien, the King Kong was the first memory of seeing a movie I ever had. Uh, I didn't see the theater, but I saw it sitting in my dad's lap on probably a small little black and white television, and that is echoed through these films, Jurassic Park. When you see that T Rex, bam! It was right back to the stop motion. And then Nightmare Before Christmas. I think as a like, you know, as a young teen, seeing this movie and and what it looks like and how it moves, and and they weren't they're now stop motion films are sort of not a dime a dozen, but we aren't as a. I mean, look at the Del Toro's Pinocchio is magnificent, but mm-hmm. it's like it's taken us a little while to get there, and we had stop motion work, but like. This was something completely different in just its scale, and the story, though I think is great too. I remember at the time a lot of the critics talking about the technique is great, but its story is a story. The story has proved itself over time, and I think that it is taken from those Rankin and Bass, that kind of more crude stop motion little uh, short films and those holiday specials, and then it builds this whole world out of it but here's my thing about nightmare before christmas is the thing i fell in love with with horror were the universal monsters and the harry monsters the cyclops and things like that monsters with personality but they were the heroes in my mind they were the guys i wanted to hang out with they were the they were your friends they were the people in these stories to me it was them they might have been scary, but they were the ones I wanted to see come out on top. They were the ones I didn't want to see them die. I wanted to see them triumph, right? That's the outsiders. That's what Tim Burton always connects with. That's what this movie is about. And it's also about the idea of just doing the same thing over and over to the point that you want something new. And as much as you want to go to the world of Halloween Town. Jack Skellington wants to go to the other to this other world that to me looks like a nightmare. It's <laughs> just Christmas town with all of its like kitchen and stuff, but it's new to him and all of the references like when he falls from the sky and he's hanging in the arm like like Julius Caesar laying in the statue. I mean, the I never expected to see the amount of depth and care that went into this film, not just at the technical level, but at the voice acting. At the uh yeah, I, I took a talk with for another two hours, so I won't. But yeah, yeah. my number one <laughs> film, uh and and yeah.
0: That scene in the graveyard with him lying in the angel's arms is incredible. But yeah, I I don't I think it's Nathan, it's one of those things where I don't Tim Burton hasn't made very many horror movies, but almost every one of his movies appeal to horror fans. And if you're thinking Beetlejuice, if you're thinking um, mm-hmm. you know.
1: A corpse bride or uh and let's also point out because i think the credits do here this is tim burton's vision but henry selleck and who who went on and is also responsible for Coraline, which is also amazing yeah henry Selleck is behind a lot of what's in nightmare for christmas as much as is tim burton but i agree uh, tim burton was on a real role at this point he's got another movie that will probably show up in my 1994 also probably more like matinee not exactly horror but i don't know why anyone who's not a horror fan would really want to see it and we'll talk about that later but I'll, I'll say this i am i i want to see i know tim burton worked on wednesday and he did he did work with that uh and i liked it but i want to see tim burton get back to this kind of thing to to this to uh, with uh, maybe a little bit fresher but his movies in recent years have not been impressive to me.
0: No, I listen. It's not all going to hit, but he's had a lot of a lot more hits than this is. And yeah, I'm glad you pointed out. Uh, I did want to say that earlier, and I forgot that Henry Selleck did direct this. So Burton was just, you know, writing, producing that kind of stuff, but drawing all the characters coming up yeah, with dude, all the, I know, pretty much just... everything except for directing. But if this was Hitchcock, you know, if, if it's all up to the director to it's the director's success if everyone else's success is the director's success so all right Nathan well it probably should be pretty clear what my number one is Carnosaur (laughs) yes (laughs) uh no it is Jurassic Park and this is one of those films that I consider just a perfect it's not perfect but it is a masterpiece and it's always stuck with me I know we've you've talked about this film extensively but um As someone who was just so lucky enough, even things like The Lost World, I was happy with as, you know, an eight year old kid. But just growing up with this movie and just getting into dinosaurs to the point of where I would videotape the John Goodman narrated. I think it was called When Dinosaurs Walked the Earth or something like that. Yeah. Yeah, I was big. And you call yourself a dino fan, Nathan. How dare you? How dare you put that number two? And you won't even see that I'm T Rex movie or whatever
1: that junk was that I sent to you earlier. <laughs> whatever that junk was. Look, you have you have no idea because unless you own your Hunter from the Future or Dinosaurus, don't even talk to me.
0: <laughs> oh no, we are we're just messing around here. But yeah, Jurassic Park is an incredible movie. Seems There's like so you're a little
1: dinosaur about the whole, whole thing, if you ask me. <laughs>
0: Oh, if we keep this up, we're gonna get yeah. down the Whatever. erotica <laughs> path again, and it's not good.
1: If you want to wreck your podcast, go for it. I don't care.
0: <laughs> oh. Oh no. I'm I'm too tired <laughs> gotta, for this. Quick go somewhere else. Too tired for this. But anyway, yes, this is an incredible movie. It is my number one of the year. Um, I think there's plenty enough horror in there to for it to be considered that and yeah, I don't know how much there is to say about these two classics, but I think we've we've said a lot,
1: and that is my number one in uh, The only thing I'll say, I, I did get a. Anytime you get a chance to see these movies on the big screen, definitely take it. I got a chance to see these at the symphony, like both of these films, uh, with the orchestral score in the background, and that was fantastic. These, they're they're just all timers. Yeah.
0: And speaking of this era of dinosaurs, Nathan, uh, you fan of Dinotopia or not?
1: I love, and I have actually sitting above me a copy of the Dinotopia book. It's sitting up here on the shelf with some of the dinosaurs I've covered over the years. But what the, th- the, the thing is they made a TV movie of it, a Hallmark film. That was not, uh, it was not, it was junk. I, uh, I, I hoped, I hoped that we would get a legitimate Dinotopia movie. I think the ship has sailed on that really. Um, There's been so many things that would be so similar to it at this point. I'd still be up for seeing it. I think it was fantastic. Uh, It could have been done in animation, but... I think they
0: tried. I think they did an animated film. I never watched it, but... um, Yeah, looking up here, it says 2005 animated film. I don't know what that was,
1: but... Uh, Yeah, it might have been like some junky animation. Sometimes that kind of stuff happens, but I definitely don't remember anything of any sort of big note.
0: No, I'm, I'm with you. I was so excited for that miniseries, and it wasn't wasn't great, but yeah, so that is our list. I'll quit stalling here. That is our list for 1993, so definitely let us know what your favorite 1993 horror movies were or what your list would be. Um, we always love seeing that kind of stuff, but with that out of the way, are you ready to jump into the box office really quickly here? Yeah, for sure. So I included, and it's a good thing I did, because I think everything I included on here did end up being on one or the other's list. So there were some, for context, there were a couple here that I wasn't sure if we were going to talk about them as horror movies or not. Um, I don't think I included matinee in here, but um, everything else I tried to grab at least a solid number of the horror movies here. Now, I will note before we get started I think Carnis- what you pointed out to me, Carnosaur was like one hundred and ninety first for the year and pulled in like what I don't even remember what it pulled in, but it wasn't very much, maybe a million dollars. I don't know, maybe pretty good for Carnosaur. Do you have the
1: twenty dollars that ticks made in Baltimore? Is that on the list? <laughs> <laughs>
0: no. Yeah, so starting at uh, the furthest back in this list that I pulled was one hundred and fifteenth overall and twelfth overall on this li- on the horror list. And that was The Dark Half, which raked in $10.6 Oof. Yeah, not not great, especially for... I mean, Stephen King Fever was kind of in full swing around this point, right? Or was getting there?
1: It was. The issue I think we had is a lot of his classic books still hadn't been adapted. This was a relatively new one. And not a lot of people had read it. I don't think it was that big of a hit. And uh, it's funny because the name George Romero, while it should have been you know, really enticed people to see it. I don't think that that was really a big aspect of it at the time that the film came out. And it was it was sort of one of those movies that was sort of like released in the spring and just sort of like dropped. You never, you, it was, I was waiting for it. And I even, I had to sort of like, we didn't move on it fast enough to even see it in the theater. It wasn't out for very long. Oh, wow. And that's
0: impressive back in those days when things would play for like an entire summer sometimes. Yeah, yeah. And then number eleven on this list, and we talked about this one earlier. Nathan was Army of Darkness at a hundred and sixth overall. It made eleven point five million, and most of that was probably its initial run because um, I think you were saying that it might not have been released until ninety three. So that's that's our bad for putting that in ninety
1: yeah, two. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that would be the whole initial run. That movie was a. I want to say it was a January or February release because the. I told you I saw it as a double feature. Uh, we, it, not a double feature, it wasn't billed that way, but rather we found the, the Dollar Theater. My dad and I went to see Army of Darkness, and then we went and watched Matinee, which was playing at the same the same time as Army of Darkness. So it was both, as I know Matinee was, a Jan, I believe, a January release. So they were January or February releases. Uh, so absolutely all of that money would be, uh, at least as far as the the U.S., box office is concerned that would have been in yeah february 19 uh 19th of 1993 here's the reason it gets a 92 release so people are ever wondering about these sorts of things it played at the zeitgeist film festival in october 9th of 1992 that's where it's getting the release date no that makes
0: sense Number 10 was Man's Best Friend. This one cracked the top 100 at 97. I was really surprised to hear that this pulled in uh, almost $13 million at the box office. So Man's
1: Best Friend made more money than The Dark Half and Army of Darkness. Yeah, so
0: which goes to tell you, you know,
1: sex sells, Nathan, right? <laughs> or, or, or faux robotic dogs. Here's the deal. I mean, let's face it. I think Army of Darkness had the last laugh on this, on this phone. Yeah. Yeah, definitely.
0: Uh, Number nine was The Crush at number 94 overall. That brought in 13.6 million. It seems I can believe that for the time that that movie would do pretty well. Uh, Number eight is The Vanishing at 91st overall, and that brought in 14.5 million. Again, I don't think these are great numbers for horror, but I think we learned like the 90s weren't the best time for horror at the box office.
1: Well, and a movie was bringing in less money, but it was also probably made for less money in most of these cases. Uh, Number seven was Needful Things at 89 overall,
0: and that brought in just over 15 million. Number six is uh, Jason Goes to Hell at number eighty-seventh overall, and that brought in just short of 16 million. Oof. Yeah. (laughs) Not exactly the... I mean that's probably why they took a little hiatus on that series, right? Other than the fact that they were intentionally trying to to kill him. But did we talk about Jason's go- Jason goes to hell, Nathan?
1: Well, we didn't because it wasn't really on no. either of our lists. <laughs> I want to I want to I want to say something interesting though because while obviously Army of Darkness ultimately probably didn't make a lot of money on its uh, you know, it's investment, so to speak. It was all we're talking about. Eleven million. We hear those kinds of numbers now for movies. I mean, we have we have the Flash come out this week and make fifty five million dollars, and it's just an instant horrendous bomb because it costs like yeah. three hundred million dollars.
0: Not, not as big as the bomb is Elemental.
1: No, like, twenty eight twenty eight million. Yeah, the production budget on Army of Darkness was eleven eleven million dollars. So yeah. it makes eleven million domestically, and then it makes another ten internationally. So you have the worldwide box office of twenty one million. It does at least make more than it costs to make. That was probably true of most of the movies we're talking about. So I just want to put that in perspective for the audience is that, yes, some of these movies, it's like only 10 million. That that That's horrendous for any movie opening now. But it would have been it wouldn't have been necessarily a, you know, the nail in the coffin at that point in time. Yeah.
0: Well, and you have to remember, this is also not adjusted for inflation and right just like you were saying, I mean,
1: this is domestic only. So we're talking Jason goes to hell, man. That the movie had a production budget of $3 million and none of that was on the script. I oh, no. <laughs> saw this movie. I had a friend uh, whose parents dropped us off at the theater. we're like, here's somebody same way. I think I told the same story when Freddy's dead came around. Man, it's the first time I ever seen boobs in a in a theater except for maybe baby secret lost legend. I might've been some Sean Young side boob. Now that I think about it, very odd for a Disney dinosaur movie, but whatever, definitely there were, there were, there was definitely some breasts in this film and a lot of blood. And one of the most incoherent plots I've ever seen in my life. Didn't you just see this for the first time? Yeah, I did. Yeah. Why don't we get your thoughts?
0: (laughs) Yeah, it's a, it's a bit of an insane movie. I can't say that I really cared for it, but I will say it's not just paint by numbers. Friday the Thirteenth. It was definitely trying to do something a little different. It
1: was trying and, to do something. Yes.
0: Yeah, and I think the best thing is you pointed out the introduction by the uh, director of this film, <laughs> saying what like thank you for buying this for the fifth time or something like it's that. He's like
1: thank you for purchasing what is probably your fourth copy of this movie.
0: And thank then that you, was it. and then he just
1: that's it. It's like what else can you say for yourself? Yeah, I like Stephen Williams in here. It was that bizarre quote where he's like, "When I think of Jason Voorhees, I think of a little girl sticking a hot dog through a donut or something weird." Like yeah, that.
0: yeah. Very <laughs> weird movie. There's, uh, there's weirdness abound, but there's some pretty brutal stuff in here too. And know a lot of people like it for that.
1: Yeah, it's but, it's a dumpster fire to be sure, guys. But <laughs> yeah, yeah, might be an
0: entertaining dumpster fire. Getting back on track here, number five is Fire in the Sky at 76th overall. That one pulled in just shy of 20000000 million. I'm not sure what that one cost to make, but you would think it'd maybe be a little bit more with the sci-fi stuff.
1: Although, again, a lot of that film is sort of, uh, you know, a little bit more mundane in terms of the production For for That's the true. most part. It doesn't sort of take place in a fantasy world or anything like that.
0: Number 4 was Adam's Family Values and this landed in 29th overall and pulled in 44 million. So that's not too shabby especially considering.
1: Yeah, that's a big those are sort of like uh holiday movie numbers and that's what this was. It was a if I'm not mistaken it was a uh Thanksgiving release
0: for this one. Number 3, I'm surprised about Nathan it's the good son at a spot higher at twenty eighth point in 44.7 million. And was this just him cashing in on his like home alone blood money at this point or.
1: Yeah, probably it was. That's interesting that, uh, and how much did you say fire in the sky was about 20 million? Yeah. Fire in the sky was just, yeah. So it had a production budget of 15 million, but, uh, it was nominated for Saturn awards and stuff like that. It did, Okay. I, again, I think it's a movie that, while it hasn't become like a full blown classic, I think it is a movie that's well regarded by most people who have seen it, and from definitely for the people who saw it when they were in a younger a younger age. The good son, though, I have not. I have no defense for the. Good yeah, son, I don't know so. how that that seems a little bit off to me because. I think what it is is you've got Macaulay Culkin. They were were selling the movie on that. And I guarantee you that some people went to this movie not being aware that it was probably a horror film, thinking maybe it's a suspense film. I don't think the the mainstream part of this was, hey, it's the Home Alone kid. Both of those Home Alone movies are still really fresh. I think Home Alone 2 came out in 92. 92, And it grossed a ton of money. So it's not surprising that the next Macaulay Culkin movie is going to, you know, make a little bit of money no matter what kind of movie it ultimately is.
0: Yeah, yeah, that's a fair point. And, you know, whatever you say about The Good Son, it's still uh, better than Richie Rich. So
1: <laughs> what was that? Was that like 94? Was that, that was a year later? was 94, yep. yep. Oh, he did Page Master, too. You know, the, the hits kept coming. Yeah, yeah. Um, and like, isn't there one called getting even with dad around the same, same time? That sounds familiar, but I'm not sure, but see, so. right. The good son started to look pretty
0: good. Yeah, I know. I agree with you there. Um, <laughs> okay. And then number, uh, two and, you know, nightmare before Christmas, it's up at 24th and pulled in just a tiny bit over 50 million. Really? Yeah. Huh. Would you think that would be cuz that surprised me. I thought that would be higher when I first saw this. So list. here
1: here's here's the reasoning I think for that for that number. Because what you're looking at is not that's the total box office or that's the total 1993 box this office. This is
0: the total 1993 box so office. So
1: that's that's where your deal is because The Nightmare Before Christmas uh when it's released, I need to double check on this, but let's see. Its release date, yeah, its release date was October, so it, did, it had a couple months and its box office I think the ultimate box office, maybe the uh, international box office was like 95 million or 90 million or something like that. I wasn't
0: that. necessarily a surprised by the number, I just thought it might have been higher on the, um, the list than 24th, but
1: Yeah, well there were, I think the thing is you had a lot of movies from this year, movies like The Fugitive and was Aladdin this year or was that 92? That's that might've still been that might have still been playing though in 93. There's probably, I, I'm curious to hear what some of the non-horror films were on the list. Cause obviously I know what number one is, you know?
0: Yeah. Yeah. And, and number one was number one by a mile. Let's just get that one out of the way. That was Jurassic Park with 338.9 million. And that was a far cry from the number two, I will say. And here's the
1: deal about Jurassic Park. It comes out in, June, right? Of 1993. June 11th, yes. June 11th of 1993. You, and it comes out on VHS in like September of 1994. So I remember that distinctly. It goes a whole, and that never happened even back then where a movie went more than a year before there was a VHS of it out, right? Yeah. Like the fact that they let that thing play the entire next year come back to theaters for like limited runs in the summer of 94 and then hit video in this, in the like fall of 94. That was not a thing that was happening even back then, like that a year and a half of a movie playing at a theater before it even hits VHS. I mean, that's the kind of thing that Spielberg's ET did, but it wasn't happening with Spielberg movies uh, at that point in time.
0: Right. That was pretty impressive, I would say. But do you want me to go ahead and uh, run down like the top ten here in general? Just out of
1: curiosity, yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm curious.
0: Yeah, um, it, first of all, I want to give an honorable mention to Free Willy at number eleven. I didn't dream that that one would be that high, but it was a big. It was a big movie in the summer of ninety three. I remember watching it, but I didn't remember it was uh that important. But it was. Um, the
1: firm was a big one too.
0: Yeah. So number ten is A Few Good Men. Makes sense. Number nine is Cliffhanger.
1: Oh, I forgot Cliffhanger was this summer. Yep. Number eight was Aladdin. Yeah, so that's, that's another one of those movies like we've been talking about. That's why I mentioned Aladdin, is that it, a majority of its money, and that's probably what similarly happened with Nightmare Before Christmas, and probably even with Jurassic Park. it would be interesting to see what Jurassic Park actually made in 1994, even though it was a summer film. And I'll get to that in a minute. I
0: can help you out there. But uh, so number seven was in the line of fire. You can sense kind of a theme going on with a lot of these. Uh, number six was Indecent Proposal. Number five was Mrs. Doubtfire. Here's a point that people always like, well, when they make movies for adults. Well,
1: this is when they, they were making movies for adults.
0: <laughs> they were, And these were very much star driven box office. Yes, yeah. this is when you could sell a name. You could sell a Tom Cruise or an Arnold Arnold Schwar- Schwarzenegger. I cannot talk. And people would show up.
1: Except this year, because I'm curious what the last action hero landed. <laughs> oh, yeah. Huh. yeah. Well, that's not a good example. It's 23rd. Yeah. I like. I, by the way, I like that movie. Actually, I, I enjoy
0: that. I haven't seen it in a while, but I remember liking it. Yeah. So number five, Mrs. Doubtfire. Number four, Sleepless in Seattle. Number three, The Firm. And number two, The Fugitive.
1: You didn't have Mrs. Doubtfire on the horror list? Uh, it's pretty (laughs) horrific, uh, but
0: (laughs) no. Um, and I, I'm showing here for domestic Jurassic Park made 338 million in 93 overall, it made 357 million. So put on another about 20 million after 1993. Wow. Yeah. But uh, of course, 621 million international for just under a billion dollars worldwide. And that wasn't necessarily a huge thing back then is movies making a billion dollars worldwide
1: no no not like it is now that was such a zeitgeist thing like jurassic park like when it came i mean it was just dominated everything that summer that was like the only movie people were talking about for the most part
0: yeah that's it's honestly not a bad top 10 as far as like returns and stuff but yeah clearly there was a winner in that year all right, Nathan. Well, I think that about wraps up our talk on 1993. Anything else you wanted to say about the year?
1: No, um, except I think, again, it's like like you said, the goal here, I think, was to put movies out there that maybe you haven't seen or mm-hmm. movies that maybe you haven't seen in a long time. These are the movies that stood out for me in 93. It's very nostalgic year for me. I do agree that the straight horror wasn't as strong as other years. But, you know, that's why I wanted to include movies that were horror adjacent or, or horror focused, but maybe weren't horror themselves, because there's a lot of great stuff out there. And I think we're going to see some similar things with 1994, although with 94, we're kind of full blown, I think, into the doldrums of where horror and science fiction and fantasy really were almost be treated like the they were dead. of, you could say. They're crossroads. What you were getting was stuff that looked like in it. If it was being made in the mainstream, it was basically made with some sort of like high gloss, like sophistication to it. So, you know, like Interview with a Vampire and things, which I'm sure we'll talk about when we get to 94. Mm-hmm. That some of these films were even, even a movie like What's Craven's New Nightmare, they kind of had to put a sort of more like, like, polished spin on it everything had to look a little classier in terms of of or at least on at least on the like a big mainstream box office level
0: yeah you know i said i was scared about 1993 but i'm really scared about 1994 going in and maybe that'll change but i think i was about at the same position I think I had like six or seven movies, horror movies that I had watched in those both of those years. And 93 turned out all right. So maybe, maybe there's hope for 94. Maybe. Yeah, we'll find out when we get there. Yeah, yeah. I got a lot of work to do on that one. But (laughs) yeah, we'll we'll try to pick this up a little closer together because I do like doing these. I thought 91 was a lot of fun for sure. And 93 was too. It just didn't have quite as depth. It wasn't quite as deep as 91 or 92.
1: Yeah, some real bangers there and there at the top, just like I think we had, We found again, I was surprised that I had, in my opinion, a pretty solid top 10. And I think you did, too. Movies were legitimately good movies Mm -hmm. and uh, not a lot of like, oh, well, you might have fun. (laughs) Well,
0: keep in mind that I think I had like Highway to Hell on my top 10 in 91. So is that right? (laughs) I don't remember. I don't remember. But (laughs) anyway, Nathan, where can
1: everybody find you? Yeah, So you can find me over at phantomgalaxypodbean.com Trey's over there as well so is Bill Van Vagel we are starting a new season we had a couple months down Uh, that was really me but uh, getting everything back up and and running and on a regular schedule also uh, splitting some of my time uh, by co-hosting with Trey as well and with Victor Rodriguez and matt rawlings and jackson rawlings over at horror movie podcast which is back up at the time this episode uh hits you probably there's probably well we've probably released about three of them at this point we had the episode where we were uh, sort of the changing of the of the guard and we did an episode that's up right now about evil dead and then we did sort of the Return of the Frankensteinian episodes where we sort of all uh, talk about a lot of different things, including the Chainsaw Awards. And we give our summer kind of preview of movies that are coming out, horror films coming out for summer 2023. Mm -hmm.
0: Yeah, that was a fun one to record and sit down and go through. But yeah, like Nathan said, I am over there. I feel like there's going to be a lot of we've talked and we have some plans about stuff we're doing together across all these different shows, as always, really. Yeah, as far as Screaming Through the Ages, I did put out kind of a cryptic uh, Facebook post. There is some changing going on around here. I'm not going to talk about it now. You'll find out because as you're listening to this, this is pretty much a standard episode. But you'll find out a little bit more of that on the next episode. And I'll give some details in between. But keep your ears peeled for that one. Yeah, but you can find the podcast over on Twitter at Screaming Ages You can find the join the Facebook group and also join the Facebook group for Phantom Galaxy and hopefully one for horror movie podcast soon. And also, like Nathan said, I'm over on Phantom Galaxy, co-hosting on horror movie podcast. You can find me all over the place these days. But with all that being said, keep your eyes on your favorite podcast feed for your next biweekly horror movie history lesson.